John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Hi, this is Steve. On July 31st, we lost director Alan Parker. Now, Parker has one of the most diverse filmographies of any director I can think of, from the ridiculous comedy of Bugsy Malone to the intense Midnight Express, heavy historical dramas like Mississippi Burning, the personal and heartfelt Birdie, and the epic musical Evita. But for us, when it came time to honor this great director, there was no question about which movie we wanted to explore. Funny, heartfelt, quirky, and real, The Commitments is a movie unlike any other. It's the story of a great band coming together and falling apart. It is an ensemble of young actor musicians who seem as honest and real as the film's Dublin setting. And above all, there's the music. Who would have thought that a bunch of Irish kids in the early 90s could connect so deeply to American soul? But that is exactly what happens in this totally unique film, and its chart-topping soundtrack is a testament to the enduring power of this incredible music. So if you haven't seen this great film, take your musical journey to cinephiles.net, where you can buy or stream The Commitments, along with every other movie we've ever reviewed. And if you support the show on patreon.com slash thecinephiles, right now you could be hearing a cinephile short on the rise of home video and how home entertainment is shaping the movie world of the future. So that's home video on Patreon tomorrow and Alan Parker's The Commitments this Friday on The Cinephiles. The Irish are the blacks of Europe and Dubliners are the blacks of Ireland and the Northside Dubliners are the blacks of Dublin. So say it once, say it loud. I'm black and I'm proud. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film, we explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hey everyone, my name is John Roca. I'm a writer, producer, and host here in Los Angeles, California, and a voiceover artist as well, and I'm excited and a big music lover, so I'm excited today to get into the movie we're going to get into after, of course, we pay tribute to the late great director of this movie. 
And that, of course, is Alan Parker, who we lost uh, about a week ago. And, uh, and you know, it's, it's a weird thing that, that you and I do, which is like, <laughs> I go on Twitter, I see that tragically we've lost some great person, and yeah. the first thing I do is text you <laughs> and say, okay, what movie are we doing? Yeah, let's debate what movie we're going to do for him or well, her. And, uh, yeah. And this time there was no debate. Yeah, you said the commitments, and I'm like, that's the that's what I want to do too. I love this movie. I hadn't seen it in a long time. Yeah, I just it's a joyful film, even though it's not a happy film no. in all sorts of ways. But because of the music, I think it's just really joyful. Well, I think that's the gift of this film. It's like Rocky and Bad News Bears. Guess what? The hero doesn't win at the end, and I love that. And there's a great little moment, which well, of course, we'll get to as we get to the movie, but. There's a great little moment near the end where Lip says to, uh, I forget the guy's name, Richard, I think, says to him, hey, that's the thing. It wasn't about selling records. but That's what we could have done. But this moment in time is so is such a treasure because of what could have been. It's actually something to savor and enjoy rather than to regret. What a incredibly uh, psychologically healthy way to approach a situation that doesn't end up working out. Uh, with you making a lot of money and uh, becoming famous and what have you. Uh, and I thought that's great. Same thing with Rocky. Like, Rocky lost the fight at the end. The Bad News Bears don't win that game. And it makes it even more precious of a movie because of that. Well, and I think, and we'll talk about this throughout, is that yeah. it makes the movie about something else. Yes. Something that... because. I don't have a big record contract, but I can relate to having a dream and struggling yeah. to it. And, and I think all of us can. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Alan Parker, who's born sure. in 1944. He grew up in a, a very working class environment in London. Um, he was uh, a good student, had no interest in film, didn't plan <laughs> on going into film, did like photography, studied science. And his job was going into advertising. Yeah. And this is, it's funny that we've had this multiple times is that there are multiple directors. So many directors have a different pathway to becoming a director. Yeah. And, and several of them lately have done it through advertising. We just talked about, I just drew a blank on his name, but the director of Chariots of Fire. Yeah, Hugh Hudson. Hugh Hudson. He, yeah. he literally is parallel to Alan Parker. They ended up working at the same company um, under David Putnam, who was the became the producer yes. of Chariots of Fire. Yeah. And Alan Parker, just like uh, Hugh Hudson, did TV ads. Mm -hmm. He formed his own company in 1970. They had lots of big campaigns. He, he was an associate of Ridley Scott, who's another one who came up through advertising right at the same era. His first feature was in 1973, a film called Hard Feelings that BBC bought and put it on TV. And they went, hey, you're pretty good. And they hired him to watch, work on some stuff. And he won some BAFTAs and he won some Emmys. And then he goes to direct his first uh, bigger film. And it is one that, strangely enough, has come up many, many times. And it is a movie we will never do on The Cinephiles. Yes. But that is Bugsy Malone. Bugsy Malone! <laughs> maybe if, maybe if, uh, if enough people donate at a certain level, we'll do Bugsy Malone. I love that movie. It's a nostalgic movie for me, certainly. A young Jodie Foster, a young Scott Baio, essentially uh, sending up the mafia films that had started to consume the theater in the 70s, thanks to The Godfather. Uh, and just a, a very funny, well, I, I guess I can't say very funny, but certainly <laughs> a nostalgic smile on your face for those of us who grew up at that time remembering that movie. I mean, they use cream puffs instead of machine gun bullets. <laughs> it's very funny. And the kid who plays the head 
Mafia Don is just fantastic and acts beyond his age. Uh, and so it is, and I agree with you, it is one we'll probably never do, but uh, it's one that I look back on fondly for sure. I, it's it's that era. I watched a lot of TV when I was a kid, <laughs> and I watched Bugsy Malone many times. Probably the last time I saw it, I was 13. <laughs> yeah, so maybe. No idea what that movie's like. Um, after that, he does, produced by David Putnam, he does Midnight Express, which we talked oh. about recently because we talked about Chariots of Fire. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, Oliver Stone wrote the screenplay, and he won the Oscar for that. Um, and then into Fame, 1980. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of connections between Fame and the commitments. Yeah, yeah. Um, a lot, somebody wrote about it... Uh, comparing fame to the commitments. I was reading a couple of movie reviews mm. in retrospect, and they were like, this is a better version, that the commitments is a better, more fleshed-out version of fame. He allows the scenes to breathe. He allows the characters to exist in longer stretches of time, so you have time to connect to them rather than a series of you know, uh, explosive musical numbers right. that can, that uh, are uh, woven together. And that's not a knock against fame. It's just, you know, as you mature sure. as a director, you start to understand what really works uh, character-wise for a piece like this. In 1984, he does Birdie with Matthew Modine and Nick Cage. Yeah. That Criminally underappreciated film. film. Criminally underappreciated. Yeah. Well, and another one that, that really messed me up is yeah. 1987 Angel Heart. Oh, yeah. Man, that movie... <laughs> That freaked me out. I remember the controversy around that movie too, Steve. And, oh, yeah. and you know, because it's Robert De Niro playing the devil, and then you've got this very, uh, you got voodoo in this thing. Lisa Bonet was coming out of the Cosby Show, or was still on the Cosby Show, and then she's nude in this movie, having these weird sexual things with in blood, blood and yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. yeah, all of it. And this is like peak Mickey Rourke of the '80s, right? Sure. He carries this movie with De Niro, and it's actually a damn good movie. Uh, and but it's unsettling as hell. It is really unsettling. And, and, and then in 88, Mississippi, Mississippi Burning. Mm. And, and I just want to point out, like, we've gone from Bugsy Malone, yeah. kids with cream puffs, you know, <laughs> cream pies, you know, being mobsters, yeah. into this heavy, you know, Midnight Express, yeah. going on to fame, and which is this musical, um, hopeful kid film. Yeah. Birdie, which is weird and artsy. Angel Heart, which is dark and disturbing. And now mm. Mississippi Burning, a civil rights, you know, drama with Gene yeah. Hackman. I mean, that's an incredible range of films. Yeah, agreed, agreed. And it seemed like he worked out Bugsy Malone just to get just to see that he could do a feature film. And then he goes into these uh, very tough, harrowing films. And, you, yeah, you can say what you want about fame and the music, but those kids are struggling to be seen, struggling to be heard, struggling to achieve a certain level of notoriety. And the struggle and the sacrifice that they have to go through same thing with Midnight Express, the sacrifice that he has to go through to survive that situation as an American in a Turkish prison. This People reference, they still reference uh, Midnight Express uh, as a, a, a never get stuck yeah. in a Turkish prison. Um, and, and then into, <laughs> into Birdie, which is a, a film about uh, PTSD in Vietnam. Yeah. And then into what you're talking about here with Angel Heart. It's a very hardcore exploration of relig religion and the devil the and devil, all yeah. of that. And then into Mississippi Burning, which is a very stark exploration of the racism that existed uh, uh, in our country in the 60s. Well, I mean, at the time, yes, and still now, but certainly at the time of the civil rights movement, how that was happening down there. Now, for those of you who are listening who know, it is as, it is as historically inaccurate probably as Braveheart 
is, sure. but it's still an enjoyable film for what it is, and the message for what it is, uh, I like. It's, um, and Willem it, Dafoe and him are fantastic actors. They're great, it's great performances, and they roll right out of that. He rolls right out of that into The Commitments, the film yep. we're talking about today, Evita in 1996, mm. which is a film that I have mixed feelings about. Sure. <laughs> um, I, I found a quote from him that I, I wanted to say because I, I just I, I like his attitude so much. He mm-hmm. said, My mentor was the great director Fred Zinnerman, Zinnerman mm. um, and, who I'm used to show all my films to until he died. He said something to me that I always try to keep in my head every time I decide on what film to do next. He told me that making a film was a great privilege and you should never waste it. Wow. I, it's, it, and it's so funny. Like when we put out our lists of great directors, mm. no, one put, no one puts Alan Parker on those lists. Yeah. And yet when you look at that s- string of movies, none of them are bad. Yeah. Like Evita might be the weakest in my opinion. Yeah. But like in general, that's a really really solid list of films all over the place in terms of genre yeah his hit to miss ratio is certainly better than ridley scott's oh yeah is and and a lot of directors you know so you know i I think he's yeah and this happens steve in every decade there are directors that just get kind of glossed over or lost because these other directors are such auteurs that they seem to eclipse these other good slash workman-like directors who develop solid product in multiple genres right Right. Yeah. Do you remember how you first came to the commitments? Oh, hell yeah. Uh, opening night. Are you kidding? <laughs> I, I was. This is the time where I'm transitioning into appreciating independent films, smaller films, British films, especially uh, Irish films. Like, I was so. I felt like there was a certain level of snobbery on my end about it because I was like, yeah, you, you all enjoy your, you know, your, your little comedies. I'm running off to go see this like British film. There's maybe 10 people in the theater and there's a a community here. We understand that this is a film that we got to see in the theater. Uh, And I remember that in, in, uh, in uh, uh, Virginia, Sherlington cinemas was the one to go to. But at the time, of course, this is 91. So I'm in my first year of the service so I probably, when I came home, went to, uh, you know, on a break, went to go see this uh, uh, by myself on an a-, a Saturday afternoon and just fell in love with the movie uh, and subsequently d- uh, rented uh, the rest of the trilogy, The Van and Snapper, and enjoyed those. So I've always had a, a massive love for Irish cinema and Irish films, and this one is just incredible. It, it's funny, just as you were saying that, it occurred to me something I'd never thought of before, mm. which is that... I think the era of mid-college until I moved to L.A. to go to film school yeah. in 94 is my peak movie-watching era. Oh, yeah. Is that that's when I really – because, you know, right as I graduate from college, I'm trying to break into comic books as a writer, which basically meant I wasn't doing that much. <laughs> you know, and Karen and I had just started dating, and it was like – we I saw everything. Yeah. You know? And Isn't I read it great? The, yeah. I, can't, I don't – you know – by t- when I got to film school, I barely had time to ever see a movie, yeah. you know? Um, uh, and, and mine's the same thing. I don't know if I saw it opening night. I definitely saw it in the theater in Berkeley. I think it was at the UA Theater. Mm. And, and, and I got to say, not only did I see it and love it and rent it, but this is when I used to listen to soundtracks. Oh, yeah. Oh, and I, I listened to this soundtrack over and over and over again. Karen, mm-hmm. too. We both loved it. It's a fantastic soundtrack. Dark End of the Street is still one of my karaoke mm. staples. And whenever it comes on when I'm driving full-on, full-throated singing of that song. And what's incredible about this movie, as you know, I know, I know we'll get into it in a few minutes, Steve, is the soundtrack, the songs, all the songs you hear are being sung by the people 
we're about to meet mm-hmm. before they actually come together as a group. It's an incredible anomaly when it comes to films about music that the songs you're hearing are already the group formed later on in the movie singing the songs that you know are from other R&B and soul artists. Well, and, and we'll get into this, but the reason yeah. for that is that Alan Parker wanted to cast musicians. Yes. He, he was as much about putting a band together as he was about putting a cast together. Mm-hmm. And that's what enables them to do exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. A little bit of pre-production. This is uh, from the book by Roddy Doyle. Roddy Doyle could not find a publisher for his book. He <laughs> self-published in the late 80s, which is a wow. really amazing thing. And people found the book. Um, a whole bunch of people sent it to their producers. Uh, and Roddy made a deal that he insisted on writing a screenplay. And I, 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 himself, he had never written a screenplay. And I like this a lot, is that he spent months and months writing it. Um, it took him weeks to write the first 24 pages. He sent the first 24 pages to the producers in London. They completely panicked. <laughs> and then they called him in and said, you have to come to London right away. He sat down with them for several days, and they showed him how to turn the 24 pages into eight pages. And he says that those few days with those producers was one of the greatest edu- educational experiences of his life. Wow. And, 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 and this is the thing that's so interesting is that movies and novels are just different. You don't mm-hmm. need to – in a novel, you've got to describe all the details yeah. and every single thing that happens. In a, in a movie, you come in late, and you just get this little piece, and then you go right. out, and that's what happens. Um, but he, he still finished the first screenplay. They still weren't happy with it. They brought in a couple of pros, which is Dick Clement and uh, Ian LaFrancais. Fre- um, and they really pull out the structure and the mm-hmm. plots. And then they say, we want to bring in Alan Parker. And Alan Parker was nervous about doing this because he's a Londoner. Mm-hmm. He's not from Ireland. And I don't know if you knew this, John, but there's actually some conflicts between the English and the <laughs> Irish. <laughs> it's gone on a real long time. Yeah, yeah. You know, he changes his story every time he talks about it. I read multiple interviews with Alan in preparation for this movie because I love it so much. And he's talking... Yeah, you're right, Steve. Steve, he he was intimidated, but but he's also said like I had done a bunch of stuff in America, and I kind of wanted to do something uh, closer to home, and so he so that's why another reason why he chose the project. He wanted to kind of come back a little bit, touch base with his roots, uh, but also was intimidated about the prospect <laughs> of taking this on. And there was a lot of effort put in on his side and the production staff before they shot a frame of this thing. Well, because they really wanted to get it right. They yeah. wanted to get that culture right. And this is one of the reasons that he didn't cast stars. I mean, A, they didn't mm. have a huge budget. But he's like, well, there aren't stars that call a whole bunch of stars that come from northern Dublin. Right. Which means that we'd have to bring in uh, actors and then teach them how to be like that. Yeah. And that's exactly what he didn't want to do. So instead... His casting directors, which is John and Ross Hubbard, travel uh, from London up to Dublin. And they spend two months looking for musicians, just going club to club to club. And there's a big music scene in Dublin. And they're do- Par- Alan Parker's with them doing the same things. And they end up having an open call. He says they saw 3,000 musicians. I wouldn't be su- and, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. And, and that's why you have that sequence in the movie when... What's-his-face is seeing all those musicians essentially simulating what they went through in casting. Well, well, it's not just simulating because those are the musicians that they saw. (laughs) Yeah, and one of those – and a a, a few of those uh, become a group uh, known as the Coors. If people don't Mm. know the Coors, they they end up becoming out of – they had just just started to form – the brother and the two sisters, I think it is, they just started to form uh, before the movie started and they were all cast in the movie. Uh, and different parts, and so you see them there, and 
Um, I don't know if you know this, Steve, or you were going to get to this, but for the Lips uh, character, they had looked at Van Morrison. And Van Morrison, and and he had actually come in and took a meeting with Alan Parker, and apparently the meeting went terribly, uh, and he didn't cast him. Uh, and uh, but but he approved them using any of his music that they wanted to use for the film, which I don't think they ended up using. But I, this is a whole other film if you have Van Morrison in the lips part of this uh, uh, character in the lips character. Yeah, I think it ruins the movie. Yeah, I don't disagree with yeah. you. I don't it's, disagree with you. It's so funny. You you said before about Alan Parker's story changing because I heard that story too, except I heard it different. Because mm. what I heard is that it wasn't that Van Morrison said you can use my music. It's that Van Morrison said I'll only do it if you use exclusively my music. <laughs> that sounds more like Van Morrison. I, I would believe that. But I don't know. You know, and this is you know, it's kind of we've said this before on the show. Sometimes, <laughs> I you and I tell these stories that sure, we know sure, sure. from behind the scenes. That doesn't mean those are the truth. Exactly, exactly. Which is which adds to the legend, of course. Yeah, yeah I mean, we can't really know. Um, he, <laughs> as I said, he was really looking for real musicians, and he was looking for real characters. Yeah. He was looking for people that were really interesting, and he narrows it down to this cast, um, of which only two actors, one is Joey Lip, uh, and I think the other one is Bernie, had like acting experience. All the rest of them yeah. are really just musicians. I don't mean to say just musicians, as if being a musician isn't a big deal. Um, and he goes into five weeks of rehearsal, which is, and what they did was in the mornings, they're rehearsing the band. Yeah. In the afternoon, they're rehearsing acting. Mm-hmm. And that the rehearsal process isn't like a rehearsal process you and I have been in because right. these aren't actors. So there's constant improvisation. He's constant. He's Alan Parker is improvising with them, throwing yeah. lines back and forth. They're writing down kind of what the stuff those actors are saying. And yeah. he's going, looking at the script and go, okay, in this scene, uh, the sax player is supposed to have this line and Deco, the singer is supposed to have this line mm-hmm. and he doesn't like the way they say it. So he go, you know what? Let's give that line to uh, Natalie or let's give that line to Imelda. Mm-hmm. Apparently he, what he said is that the strongest people were the girls. And so he continually made their parts bigger no surprise. Be- and took lines away from the other people. Yeah. Deco had way more lines when, when the thing started and he oh. ends up having very few lines, which works really, really well. Yeah. Um, all three of those actresses are all still working today. Maria Doyle mm-hmm. Kennedy went on. She's like, if you, watch Orphan Black. She is a huge part of Orphan Black. She's done a number of things. Angelique Ball, Angelique Ball still working in British. I see her pop up all the time because Lindley is such a massive Anglophile. We watch these strange British TV shows mm. together. She pops up all the time with arcs. And of course, Bernie's still working nowadays too. I mean, remember her from Pulp Fiction? She's there when they stab uh, Uma Thurman. She's the girl in the room there when they stab Uma Thurman in the heart. I so, had no idea that was the same person. Yeah, she pops up in many, many, many things and still working today. Yeah, and there's a you know there, those are the three that really work the most coming out of this uh, of this uh, film. So no surprise that they were the best. And they started rehearsing. You know, Alan Parker's trying to figure out what are the songs, and he narrows it yeah. down first to three hundred songs, which is still a lot. <laughs> oh my god. Then he narrows that once he gets a cast and he kind of sees what kind of vocal ranges they have, gets down to 75 songs, which they rehearse. So they're rehearsing 75 songs. Wow. 58 of which are in the film. Wow. Really? You hear 58 songs in the film? That's what they said, man. I'm surprised. Okay. That's a lot. Uh, Would you like to get into the commitments? All right. So uh, we start, we hear Treater Wright. Do you know who's singing Treater Wright? Is it 
uh, who's the main guy that does the? Uh, yes, it's it's Jimmy Rabbit. It's Robert yeah, Arkins. And, and this is one of the fascinating things is that Alan Parker thought he was actually one of the best musicians mm-hmm. that he auditioned. Fantastic trumpet player, great voice. And there was a long time where he was in the running to play Deco, to play the, the main singer. Yeah. And then because of what happens when Andrew Strong comes along, uh, which we'll get into later, is that is that they go, OK, well, you're not going to play that. But he loved this guy. And so mm-hmm. he gives him the one non-musical part in the movie. Yeah. And to make up for it, he let him sing this song. You know, and he's great. <laughs> Which is on the um, if you get the Blu-ray, they have a cut scene of him singing this song with the band, mm. which is great. Oh, I haven't seen that. I, I'll definitely yeah. watch that. It's pretty cool. Um, and now we go into the streets of Dublin, and I just this is amazing. <laughs> it is like a, I mean, literally a world I had never seen before. Yeah, and remember at this time, Steve, all we heard about is the Troubles, the Troubles. Yeah. All through the 80s, U2 singing about it. You know, we'd seen the clips, we'd seen the videos and uh, on the nightly news and, and what have you, or the global news that would come through. So this is a way to kind of introduce you back into this daily life of Ireland. You know, the stuff they're going through, uh, essentially a farmer's market for a very poor area of town. All of this uh, going on here in Dublin. Well, and it's it's so because it's like farmers market in the middle of a city. Yeah, and so we have horses and we have people selling things and street musicians and singing things, and and one of the things to me, and this is, is that uh, I've never been to Dublin in 1990, mm. but this seems real. This yeah, it feels authentic. Seem authentic. Yeah, completely authentic. Um, one of the things that Alan Parker talked a lot about is that there's a lot of Dublin pride, and he wanted to represent it. You know, mm. that this is what our city is. And the two movies that popped into my mind are two that we've done on the show is On the Waterfront and French Connection. Oh, interesting. And, and the reason yeah. those popped into my mind is that those are movies, and maybe Rocky as well, which are shot in the real world. Yeah. They're not shot in Hollywood trying to create a quote unquote real world. It's like, yeah. no, this is what it really is like. Yep. Um, we see Jimmy walking through this market, and we hear him having an interview. Tell us about the early days, Jimmy. How did it all begin? Well, Terry... I don't know who the Terry is that he's doing this interview with. <laughs> I was always in the music business, but I was more on the sales side in those days. And what we see is him trying to sell cassettes and T-shirts yeah. and not doing very well. And we cut to um, a wedding band. And we meet another, our first musician is Kenneth McCluskey, who plays Derek. And we have Glenn Hansard of The Frames, later to be seen in Once, yeah. um, uh, playing in a crappy, crappy wedding band. Dearest, darling. Yeah, and, and Glenn was not, he went to the audition with someone else. It's one of those classic stories where this guy, who's a redheaded guy, uh, wanted to audition for the film. Glenn helps him with the lines. Shows up to the audition, the guy, his friend auditions, Glenn's just waiting for him out in the hallway, and then uh, the guys come out, apparently the casters come out and go, you're here to audition. He's like, no, no, I'm here with my friend. He's like, no, 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 come in, come in. They want to see him. And that's how he gets the part. He comes in, he just, he's like, I wasn't an actor or anything, you know, but there was something about the authentic way I delivered the lines, just the relaxed way I delivered the lines, that they liked, and they kept calling me back, and I got it, and my friend didn't. That's classic... <laughs> Classic acting Hollywood thing. A lot of people have those experiences, and it's just like, ugh. Why, yeah, why don't you and I have those experiences? <laughs> I've gone to an audition with someone when I wasn't auditioning. No one I've called never, me in. I've never gone to audition with someone who wasn't, I <laughs> if I wasn't auditioning. I, I refuse to do it. 
You see, that was your big mistake. I guess so. This was guess the, so. that was your one shot. Um, and one, yeah. and we see get our first glimpse of Andrew Strong, who's going to be our singer, Deco. Yeah. Um, and uh, we hear Destination Anywhere as Jimmy is continuing to walk through the. The, the market and one of the bootleg videos that's being sold is Mississippi Burning. Yeah. By the way. Um, <laughs> so funny. Jimmy arrives at the wedding and uh, we see Imelda there, who's going to be one of the singers eventually. Mm-hmm. And then we see our drunk Andrew Strong, Deco, grab a mic and jump on stage and start singing. Oh, I'm up the ocean. And as soon as you hear his voice, it's like, oh, who is this guy? No crap. It's such a good voice, man. And at this moment, the band, which is kind of on a break, they're over talking to Jimmy saying they want him to manage us. And, and, and I love what his qualification is. Because you know everything about music, Jimmy. You had that Frankie Goes to Hollywood album before and you never heard of them. And you were the first to realize you were shite. <laughs> So, two things. One is, I love the word shite. Yeah, shite is good. It is not a word that I that I can really say because I don't come from that <laughs> culture. I don't have that accent, but I love... Sh- and shite is different from shit. It is not the same. It has a different no. meaning. No. Um, because there was so much improv, there are so many more swear words in this movie than were actually in the script. Oh, wow. Of course. I mean, because all these Dublin actors, they just kept adding more and more... Yeah swear words and alan parker and again this is where i had to check the facts said that this uh became the movie that had the most swear words of any movie in film history it's not true (laughs) i had to look it up (laughs) this is the wonderful thing about the internet it is in (laughs) fact 96th oh it is 96th amongst wow yes what's number one wolf of wall street yeah of course it is well it's three (laughs) hours exactly it's Um, more more f's per capita all right yeah what you call yourself and, and, and. And, and, fucking, and. Well, Ray is thinking of putting an exclamation mark after the second and. He says it looked deadly on the posters. <laughs> and, you know, if you've ever been in a band, I'm sure these are conversations that they've had stupid the names and uh, trying to be uh, unique in their naming yet being so terribly bad at it. And this is the moment <laughs> they notice Andrew Strong up on the stage drunkenly singing. Look at that idiot. That agent singing something approximate music. Well, I hate to correct you, Steve, but what yeah. they say is, look at that Egypt. So that's another great <laughs> word with shite, Egypt. It's E-E-J-I-O-T. It's fantastic. <laughs> I, it's one of my favorite accents is the oh, Dublin yeah. accent. Oh, it, yeah. it, and, and like a lot of, you know, some of you haven't seen this film, there is a bit of a, that adjustment where you're listening going like, uh-huh. well, what are they saying? And then you kind of settle into it. Yep. Um, the character of Deco was supposed to be kind of a George Michaels type. Super pretty boy, talented, all the girls into him, but, but a complete jerk. And that is what they were looking for, which is one of the reasons the guy who plays Jimmy, who's really good looking, was in the, yeah. in the lead for the part. Yeah. And there was a guy named Robert Strong, who was a well-established singer, um, yeah. you know, middle-aged guy, who was helping Alan Parker out both with the audition process and with arranging musicians, because they'd have musicians to play with all the people that were auditioning. And there was one day, this is the story, there was one day that uh, Robert couldn't come in. And he said, I'm really sorry, I got a gig or I got a thing, but I'll t- I'm going to send you my kid. My son, Andrew, is going to come in. And Alan Parker is going, ugh, so we're going to get some kid that's going to come in. He comes in, they look at this guy, they're like, oh, what's he going to do? And then he opens his mouth. <laughs> and everyone went, holy 
shit. Yeah. He was 16 years old. That's incredible. It's, it's so hard to believe that he's 16 when you watch the movie. But then again, growing up in an area like that, man, you're forced to grow up quick if you have that kind of, I don't know, just that kind of sensibility within you. And he has the vibe of a 20-year-old, 24-year-old, 25-year-old guy who's been working in the docks for a while. You know, he's just got that look to him. Plus the the long hair and everything just all adds to it and size is girth. Yeah. What's so weird is if you – he's a completely, I would say, a two-faced person, which is that mm. most of the time you go like, this guy's 25. This guy, yeah. he can be 30. And then there's certain other moments where you have a different angle on him. You're like, oh, he is 16. Yeah, right. Like he is a complete baby face, a total kid. And, and because of this, because of who he was, that part changed a lot. Yeah. You know, and that's part of why lines are being given to other people. And it's just because they found this guy with this unbelievable voice. Yeah. So we're talking about forming this new band, and Jimmy's first rule is Ray, who's the lead singer, he is not going to be in it. And it's a smart decision. Ray and it's a smart decision. Cheesy. <laughs> Outside, uh, we're talking about names. There has to be those something. All the best 60s bands were the somethings. How about the fucking agents? <laughs> <laughs> and now we're going to get into the thing, which is the core of the movie. Because they ask, what kind of music are we going to do? And Jimmy says, Your music should be about where you're from and the sort of people you come from. It should be about struggle and sex. And I don't mean mushy, shite love songs. I mean riding, fucking tongues, scooters, boxers, the works. Jesus. What kind of music says all that? Soul. Soul. I think just the concept <laughs> is so... It's one of those things where, like, I remember seeing the trailer and going, yeah. what the hell is this? Yeah. And yet it's perfect. Yeah, it's not even offensive because they're doing it out of respect because they know the people who created Soul came from areas just like the areas yeah. they came from. Uh, and, and I don't mean Dublin. I mean like a hard scrabble, poor areas. Nope. That's, at the, that's at the foundation of Soul, this yearning for connection, for love, for sex, for fame. It's all there in Soul. And anger too. And like anger, I, yes. I want to get out. Absolutely. You know, it's yeah. that there's so much passion yeah. um, in in this music. Um, we go to it's it's like the next day, and we see just sort of scenes as we'll see throughout the film of the streets. And one of the things that I really struck me was there's obviously we're in a world with a lot of poverty and a lot of difficulty and a lot of yeah. suffering, and yet there's so much fun and life that's happening on these streets at the same time with kids playing and people just doing. It's just a very alive world we're in. Are you Mr. Robin? Yeah. And there is Cole Meany. <laughs> um, he's worked with Alan Parker multiple times. Yeah. He's always great. Always a fun actor. Yep. And the kid has come because he's here about the ad. What ad? The one on the paper. <laughs> and Cole takes the newspaper and says, You have the wrong rabbit. Slams the door on him. <laughs> Can I have my paper back, sir? Fuck off. And it ends up that Jimmy has put an ad in the paper that says, Have you got soul? If so, the world's hardest working band is looking for you. Contact Jay Rabbit. Rednecks and Southsiders need not apply. <laughs> I didn't know about this huge division between North and South Dubliners. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, it is a very... I mean, I guess it's like, you know, Manhattan versus New Jersey or, yeah. or you know, yeah. so one of those things where it's like there's people that don't cross over that bridge, cross the river. Wow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Northern Virginia, Southern Virginia has the same thing. Cole Meany, who is uh, Jimmy's dad, he has a good idea of who, sh who the singer should be. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> himself. <laughs> Goes right into an Elvis song. <laughs> By the way, I love that they throw this Elvis kind of subplot throughout the movie because, mm-hmm. you know, with Soul, there was always that thing that uh, kind of thing that Elvis steal Soul from black people to become famous with what he did. There's all that kind of stuff, rock and roll rather, from uh, black people. Was it based in that soul? You know, Mom's Mabley and all that. Rock and roll was in essence a, a term for sex back then. Uh, and so there's all that thing. So I like that they kind of just throw this in there because I don't think he did that, but some people do. Um, you know, there's that line in Public Enemy, you know, uh, where he says uh, in Fight the Power, he says, uh, yeah. I never was a fan of Elvis Presley, motherfucking man, John Wayne. And it's like, oh. but I like that they throw this in here because, of course, the older generation would have a reverence for Elvis, right? It's a certain kind of respect uh, as their kids would have a reverence for soul because that's more of the guttural stuff the young stuff when you're desperate for more and elvis is more of the more calmer stuff as he gets older you know the more of like i love you that kind of stuff you know so i Uh, love that there it's it's running just as a little undercurrent throughout the whole move first of all you've done elvis at karaoke right i have dressed up as elvis for halloween yes (laughs) i love biggie yeah, you do, you 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 do a good Elvis, I'm sure. It's that's <laughs> yeah, in your that's right in your groove, I think. I do an a good older Elvis. I don't do a good <laughs> young Elvis, but I certainly do a good older Elvis. Yes. Um, I I've thought a lot about this Elvis stole his music thing, and my my feelings yeah. about it have changed over time. Okay, but but where they start is I think Elvis was influenced. Yes. Absolutely. You know, and that, and this is, and all musicians, they, they come from the world they come from, and they love the things that they love. And there's no right. question that Elvis loved Fats Domino, and he loved all those, mm-hmm. you know, uh, African-American musicians that were creating R&B and, and rock and roll at the yeah. time. And that, along with his country roots, took him to where it took him musically. Yeah. So on the one hand, I like, look, no, he's just doing what all musicians do. But... When I think of it today and all the discussions that we're having and all of the people that were overlooked, Elvis is certainly one of the reasons that a whole bunch of people were overlooked. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, it's That's not fair. it's not Luke Gehrig's fault that Satchel Paige wasn't allowed to play in his right. league. Luke right. Gehrig is just playing baseball. Babe Ruth was just playing baseball. Yeah. But there are a whole bunch of ball players that were able to play in the major leagues because there was a whole other group of ball players that were not allowed yeah. who would have kicked their assets, yeah. you know? Yeah. And that is certainly, I think if everything was fair, Elvis would have been smaller. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's sort of my opinion on it today. Pat and Bowen, it, even, even smaller. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a whole other thing. Yeah. Um, okay. And now we go to what we talked about before, which is the audition yeah. montage. Yeah, this is great. Who are your influences? Uh, Barry Manilow. Who are your influences? Joan Baez, uh, Joni Mitchell. Uh, Wings. Mike Montone at Overdrive. Bandau Ballet, Soft Cell. Sinead O'Connor. And I love <laughs> the higher, because this is always true in music, is like, this is the form of music that's real and good, and that's therefore always. these other things are yeah. terrible. There's always yeah. gatekeeping, man. There's always yeah. gatekeeping. Well, and it depends on where you put this. Like they go, like he rejects Led Ze- Zeppelin. Yeah, like right. there's another group of people that would be Led Zeppelin would reject James Brown. You know, maybe, yeah, maybe. You know, and it's just funny. I won't go into what all the gags are, but there's some mm-hmm. very, very funny gags, um, uh, <laughs> including like 
you know, there's three part harmony. There's a woman singing from Les Mis. There's yes. guys with, you know, screaming electric guitars. I like the violin guy and the Irish dancing that goes on with <laughs> the mom. too. And that's not played. I don't think that's played for a joke because I don't think that kind of Lord of the Dance stuff was big in the early 90s. So I thought that was a really sweet moment into like the mm-hmm. culture of that before it kind of blows up, becomes a worldwide thing. We even have Zydeco Elvis. Yeah. <laughs> which Cole is not a fan of. Um, he wasn't from El- he wasn't from Memphis or what did he say? What does he say? New Orleans? He's not from New Orleans. What do you play? I used to play uh, football at school. I mean, what instrument? I don't. So what are you doing here? Well, I saw everybody else lining up, so uh, I thought you were selling drugs. <laughs> and now we found our sax player, which is Feline Gromley, who plays Dean. Yeah. Um, and we he's in the right place because his influences are Clarence Clemens and the guy from Madness. Yeah. Um, and and he he was there playing with the band that people were auditioning with. He didn't come to audition either. For him, it was a gig playing for the auditions and they let him come in. Wow. To, um, to be part of the film. To be part of the film. Wow. You know, that guy goes on to play uh, in the Letterman band for 25 years. Really? Yes. He was in. The, he played in that session band. So if you watch Letterman, you'll look, if you have an eagle eye, you can catch him back there playing the sax. Jimmy is in the tub, once again being interviewed. In your wildest dreams, Jimmy, did you ever think you'd be this big? <laughs> to be honest, Terry, I did. Even in the early days. There's such a sweetness to it, isn't there, Steve? There's such a sweetness to it. Well, and I'm assuming you've been interviewed in your head. Uh, when I was younger, sure, but... I've clearly been interviewed a number of times since, like in like over the last few years. Well, you've been actually interviewed for yeah, real. Yeah, I've actually been interviewed. So, but when my head, when I was in my twenties, I wanted to be interviewed for being a famous actor. Yes, that I've done a couple of times. Sure, I've never done it out loud. That's <laughs> that's the weird one for me. <laughs> you don't want to hear what you have to say. All right, that's fair. Well, no, I'm, I think. Through, well, I mean, I'm a person who thinks through everything. Yes, and true. so I, you know, it's like. I think through how I would explain, you know, I think it's part of why I'm a teacher is like I'm thinking about a thing and then I think about how I would explain that thing or how I would talk about that thing. I still do that. Even when I did interview myself when I was 18 and I imagined myself on Carson or something. Yeah. I didn't talk out loud while holding on to a fake microphone, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Well, in this moment, right, doesn't a kid kid come and knock outside the door? Yes. And Jimmy looks through the window. That kid – is the kid from uh, the cover of War and Boy from U2 on the album cover. That's the same kid. The and kid so that they, refuses to sing. Yeah, the kid that refuses to sing in front of everybody because he's embarrassed and he just skateboards away. Mm-hmm. I thought to myself, that's such a weird scene to throw in the movie. So I did some research on it and found out they did that as kind of an homage to U2, mm. as kind of a wink to U2 uh, to have that kid. And for the Irish audiences who knew who that kid was because his brother apparently – uh, is a famous Irish artist, Guji or something like that. So hmm. that was a nice little, I, I thought that was a nice little wink and nod uh, if you look for it. Yeah. We're at a karaoke place talking to our potential drummer. I love that they ask him what his influences are, and he <laughs> says, Animal of the Muppets. <laughs> um, yeah. And they go off on Depeche Mode and art school music, and then it's like, well, the Beatles went to art school. Um, I love again. Some so much of Jimmy's lines are so great, and I'll mm. just play this one here. It's who it's aimed at: wankers with funny haircuts and rich stars with fuck all else to do all day, but pricking around with synths. <laughs> it's just a great line. Yeah. And then in walks Imelda, this blonde that we had seen at, at the wedding, and they ogle her in a ridiculous way. Well, and Jimmy now heads up to a to a chips truck, 
and there is Bernie, and he orders some chips and asks her to be a backup singer. And, like, and, and oh, can you get a Milda Quirk to also be in the band? Uh, and then not to be outdone, she says, uh, Natalie, too. I have my friend Natalie who can sing. Bring her, too. Sure, bring don't, her, too. Don't, don't make sure, but make sure you don't forget about Imelda. So understanding the sex cells, uh, especially in rock and roll. Well, or, and it immediately yeah. sets in Bernie like this feeling of, did he actually want me in the band? Right, or did right. he just want me because I was the way to get Imelda? <laughs> um, have you had chips with salt and vinegar? I have in the, the UK, yeah. I mean, I, the thing that surprised me the most about my girlfriend when we went to the UK, Steve Morris, is she had to try fish and chips from two or three different places that she scoured and investigated and spent hours honing which ones to go to. She had such a – and my, my girlfriend has like – she could be real snooty about food, but for some reason – we had to try fish and chips in these three places, so I've had the chips with salt and all of that, <laughs> and uh, out of a, out of a truck, and then in a restaurant as well. So yeah, you know and that I on, on some level you're dating Steve Morris, right? <laughs> I don't know if that's true, and please don't put that image in my head. But yeah, okay, fair. Because <laughs> I of course have my list. I whenever I'm going somewhere, I have lists of. Do you really? Of, oh yeah. Oh, I just kind of float by the seat of my pants no, and do a no, little bit of research while I'm there. No, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I love food. I mean, I love food, obviously. I love yeah. that's That's one of the main joys of traveling for me. And that's so, amazing. like, if I hear – so I, 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 I use Yelp. And if I mm-hmm. hear about a good restaurant in Toledo, yeah. I just bookmark it on Yelp. So that if I'm ever in Toledo, there are <laughs> restaurants I have bookmarked there. And definitely, if I go to a food desk, you know, a, a place, I want to eat that food, you know. Yeah, and yeah. so, of course, I'd want to get find out what is the best fish and chips place in London and go yeah. there. It That's how. I, yeah. And we went to this place in Trafalgar Square, and she was fucking right. It was great. It was yeah. so good. You know, I, I remember the first time I had salt and vinegar on chips was mm. I went to the International Boy Scout Jamboree in Canada. <laughs> near outside of Banff mm-hmm. and um and and they they said this is how you do you know you put the the malt vinegar on and the salt and I was like that sounds disgusting i think this is one of the first instances of me being a foodie is that i went <laughs> but i have to try it and i tried it i'm like this is delicious yeah it's yeah. completely the opposite of french fries and ketchup but it's great <laughs> Jimmy's walking through a bus wash and there he finds deco our drunk from the uh band eating some soup and he walks up to him and says, My name's Jimmy Rabbit. I'm putting a band together. I need a singer. Me? Yeah. I heard you. You have a rare pair of lungs. Where did you hear me singing? At the Quirk wedding. You got up and sang. I did? <laughs> so he has no memory of singing at all. By the way, 16... Well, you're allowed to drink, I guess, at a younger age. And well, well this, is, this is one of the things that happened, is you're hanging out with a young group of musicians. Yeah. And they're working together all day. What do you think they're doing all night? Yeah, There's a lot of drinking. And Andrew Strong, the 16-year-old great singer, he was out there trying to keep up with all the other musicians. And no one was stopping him until finally they said, Alan Parker went, no, no, this is a real problem. He's not doing well in the movie. Yeah, it'll affect his voice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so they finally said the only thing they figured out to do was they moved him into the hotel room with the AD. So Andrew Strong was rooming with the AD to keep him a little bit on the straight and narrow so he could make it through this movie. That's awesome. (laughs) We cut to James Brown doing I Love You So, old black and white TV. And Jimmy says, this is what you got to do. Maybe we're a little white for that kind of thing. 
<laughs> We're a bit white. We're a bit white. I love that line. Do you not get it, lads? The Irish are the blacks of Europe, and Dubliners are the blacks of Ireland, and the North Side Dubliners are the blacks of Dublin. By the way, in the book, and in, uh, this is yeah. the N- this was the N word. Oh, yeah. yeah, they did not do that. Roddy, um, Roddy. <laughs> yeah. So say it once. Say it loud. I'm black and I'm proud. <laughs> black and I'm proud. I, that was I almost positive that was in the trailer. <laughs> yeah, I think it was. I think it was. It was such their a, reactions were so great. Yeah, and yet the sax guy mouths it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and now we're gonna meet Joey the Lips. Mm. He's riding down a scooter. He crashes the scooter. That's actually what happened, by the way. He could not, <laughs> Steve. He couldn't. Uh, he could not drive this uh, this scooter to save his life. Uh, well, Johnny Murphy. He didn't have a driver's license. He'd never driven a car. <laughs> this is this is really hard for him. Yeah. Um, he was terrified of the scooter. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he shows up, and we have this conversation. And I, he he's so important to this film. This oh character, he is. He is the Greek chorus. He comes in. In essence, well, I don't know a Greek chorus, but he comes in. In essence, the band would never be formed without him. He yeah. is the elder statesman. He is the veteran player you hire to, or you get onto your team to kind of get everybody together on the same page. Uh, and because he's got one more year left in him uh, before he retires, and it's he's perfect. The way he he shoots down all the cracks that Jimmy wants to make at his expense. He just kind of rolls with him, man, because it's like no big deal. And it, it totally impresses uh, Jimmy. He is both the musical and the spiritual center of the yes. band. Yeah. And his whole attitude, he's got this sort of zen, mellow <laughs> thing. And I, you know, I he calls it. everyone brothers and sisters. Yeah. Um, the one thing is this, uh, Johnny Murphy is one of the few people who is not a musician. He, he yes. couldn't play the trumpet. He had to learn a little bit about how to look like he could play the trumpet. Yeah. And Jimmy's first reaction is, is he says, you're the same age as me, da. But I'm 16 years younger than B.B. King. You've heard of B.B. King? I jammed with a man. Piss off. And this is going to set up one of the main things is, is he, what he's saying, the truth? Yeah. You know, can we buy that he really is jammed with all these people that he says he has? And once again, Steve, look, you're, you're, the, you're the director. You've written screenplays. But from the outside, I've never written one in my life, but from the outside, this is such a brilliant device to use to add this mystery, this mystery to this or mystery component to this overall storyline that's happening in the film. Right. Is he telling the truth? Is he not telling the truth? And it comes in at a perfect time when we've got got an idea what's happening. And all of a sudden, this person shows up almost like a mystical person shows up and do they really have a connection to God or do they not? And so through the whole movie, you're wondering, is he what he says he is? So it's a nice little element of mystery to throw in uh, to the film overall. I'm glad you brought it up because, I, I, you know, one of my basic rules of screenwriting mm. or directing is when faced with two choices, make the most dramatic one. And that's huh. not always true, but it's usually true. And if you mm. go like, well, OK, I have this guy show up and it could either be. That everybody just believes him. Yeah. Yes, I, you did all this. Or that some or all the people don't believe them. Yeah. And just knowing nothing else about the movie, about the character, about the structure, which of those two choices is more dramatic? It's more active that they don't believe him. Exactly. Yeah. If everyone believes him, it is passive. That we yeah. just got. Then we just got information. Here is a guy who played with Wilson Pickett and Sam Cooke and Stevie Wonder, whatever. Right, right. 
if you don't believe him, then it is a, a strain that can be active throughout the movie and we can address right. it and have conflict over it. And of course, that's what we're always trying to create. So, so it's, it, it, it's so counterintuitive for young screenwriters because they think, oh, I just need to get the information out. He yeah. is an experienced musician. It's like, <laughs> that's not the job. Yeah. The job is to get the conflict out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> two, two stories. One is Johnny Murphy was totally drinking and partying with all the kids. He was right there with him. He's a well-known theater actor. In fact, he did uh, Godot yeah. for decades. Yeah. Loved Beckett. Here's a quick story that Alan Parker told. I don't know how true this is, but apparently years after the movie, he's just lined up in a bank to withdraw some money or something, and the bank is robbed, and a bunch of guys come in with masks and shotguns and you know rob the bank, and he's absolutely terror- terrified. And as the crooks are leaving, one of them stops and recognizes him, and not only goes, you're Joey Lips, but quotes the film <laughs> before yeah. running out. <laughs> uh, from and and I saw that in the in the uh, one of the pieces on the D- DVD and and yeah. shakes his hand like makes him shake his hand <laughs> which is an even more like oh my god please <laughs> that's brilliant it's such a weird thing because we've heard these stories before is yes they're actors who are movie stars and everywhere they go are, are, they're right. recognized but they're also actors who played like had two lines yeah. in a really yeah. famous thing and for the rest of they did one day of work on a movie set yeah. and for the yeah. rest of their lives. People will recognize him for that thing. Yeah, yeah. Why would you want to join us? The Lord sent me. The Lord blows my trumpet. <laughs> so <laughs> um, We go to him playing Moon River. Uh, this is the first scene ever shot in the film. Wait, wait. Don't gloss over a great joke. Okay, I'm I know, sorry. And with Cole Meany, goes, when <laughs> he right. says to him, he says, the Lord sent him. On a Suzuki? Uh, that, that is such a great, great joke. Anyway, all right. <laughs> um, I believe it's on a on a fucking on a fucking Suzuki. Yeah. Um, and the looks from the, the we're with uh, some of the band members and looks from the guys when he plays Moon River are just like, oh, this guy's good. Yeah. They don't particularly like Moon River, but this guy can play. <laughs> See, the Lord told me the Irish brothers needed some soul. He said the Irish brothers wouldn't be shooting the arses off each other if they had soul. Let me ask you this question. Yeah. It's it's proven at the end of the film that Joey did know Wilson Pickett. Right? Yes. Is everything Joey says true? Doesn't have to be. Doesn't have to be, nor does it need to be. But this thing is true. And like all great which, musicians. Which thing? Which thing? The, the Wilson Pickett thing yes. is true. But like all great musicians and all great veterans of a thing you want to get into or you want to know about. Uh, stories abound, legends abound, and that's part of the joy of having something like that or someone like that uh, in your life. And they're great. They're great. Totally. You know? Well, and the thing I think is that you take the famous people, there are actually far more people that go into the periphery, into the orbit of famous people than you would mm. think. And so there are tons and tons of people who might have been a session musician on this thing oh, or yeah. showed up at Graceland at that thing. And there is truth there. But actually, you know, Elvis doesn't remember them. You know what right. I mean? Because there, right. there's thousands of people that showed up at Graceland at one time or another. Now, if yeah. the story that he's going to tell about Elvis later on actually happened, maybe Elvis <laughs> would remember that. Um, we find out about uh, Stephen Clifford, who's a medical student, who's going to uh, be in the band. Places we'd be playing could be useful to have someone that could bandage heads. 
and one thing we should talk about is one of the places we start to rehearse is at Joey's mom's place. Yeah. She is an amazing character. Yeah, fantastic character. Just her look, <laughs> her strangeness, her playing the violin. Um, and she answers the door and sends Imelda, Bernie, and Natalie off to go find them. Yeah. And we and we go inside and we're talking about what's the band gonna be called? And they say and Jimmy says, Joey knows, tell them. And they do in the most theatrical way. Mm. We are. We are. <laughs> and then we cut away to the girls having to climb over this hedge. Um, and then we cut back in. Joey's never said it. And now they react to the commitments. The commitments. The commitments. The commitments. That's interesting, right? What an interesting choice, Steve, to cut away before he says it. And then have the after effect of him saying it. It is. It's a totally interesting choice. And right. I think the way it's structured, because he repeats we are. I think yeah. that's in the script. I don't think that happened in, in it could have mm. that's the kind of thing you could have happened in post. But yeah. I think it it was structured in the script to be that way. Yeah. And they look over as they're talking about the commitments and see the, the girls coming their way. Lads, you're looking at the commitment. Brilliant management, brother Rabbit. I love this moment because you could ding this movie, right? He's a young man. Angelique Ball at this time is absolutely gorgeous. She's beautiful. So the guys, of course, would fall all over themselves. But Bernie's the one that says, right? What, what, you, what you're looking at for whatever it is. Yeah. Or Maria says it. One, or uh, Natalie says it. Whichever one of the three. And I know it's not Imelda, but one of the two says it. And it just smacks them right back down like they're little kids. And it's incredible to see their faces uh, immediately revert to being like uh, 10-year-old kids who got caught with the hands in the cookie jar. I love it. And that tells you right there, those women are not women to be fucked with. And I love that. Well, this is the question I asked Karen. I said, because we were watching, because there's a lot yeah. of ogling, of not only ogling oh, sure. of the women, but structuring it. Their job is to be sexy on stage. Mm. And I said to Karen, I said, well, are the characters sexist or is the movie sexist? Yeah. And she said, I don't know. We were halfway through the film when, oh. when I asked her this question. She said, I don't know. Let me think about that. Mm. And I think by the time we got to the end, the movie is not sexist at all. No. I think it is showing this sexist part of the music business and of our characters. Right. But I think the the movie is incredibly respectful to Imelda, Bernie, and Natalie. You know? Well, and, and this is the thing that we have to transition into as we move into new filmmaking that respects women, respects their contribution. We also can't walk away from the fact that there are characters or people or guys who will ogle a woman because she's beautiful, because she's attractive, because she's sexy. That's part of it. And there are some women that find power in that, right? And there's later on in the film, Bernie says that. I thought for sure you'd want to be, or Natalie says that, you'd want it, uh, a situation where they don't ogle you, right? But there's that kind of thing. So there's no, there's no hard and fast rule. And there are multiple shades of gray within that. I just think now as we move forward, we have to be respectful of that and portray the women in a strong way, yeah. but also multiple shades of that. And I think it's important. So as we go back in time and ding certain movies, we also have to understand, like, yeah, that was – that's the, you have to understand the context, right? In this context, they're not ogling her to try to assault her sexually. They're ogling her because she's beautiful and she's sexy. But when they get smacked down, they get smacked down. And that's that, you know, and so it's these characters that are being uh, and they come from a hard scrabble, you know, life's, you know, guys are going to be like that. So we got to portray their authenticity. And just like the women from that and that area, too, they got to be hard as nails, too, and tough as nails and smack back people who try to come at them in, in a way that's inappropriate. So it's like these are all just tough people living in a hard scrabble life. 
Uh, and, I, and I think that has to be uh, part of the context of when you look at things like this. Well, what I, what I would say, and again, I, you know, we're continuing to reevaluate how we feel mm. about these things. Mm. But what I would say is that, look, sex is real. People yeah. are attracted to each other. They, yes. they do notice each other's bodies. They do objectify each other. In right. fact, you know, as we look at what are the big parts of life, sex and attraction and lust and all that, right. that's a big part of humans. And so if we're going to do art, we can't just ignore this huge slice yeah. of who we are and how we feel and, you know, yeah. why we are attracted to people. It's in there. What's important is con- putting the context in correctly. Yeah. That's what's important. Well, and then we go like, how do I be a better person? Yes, you know, like absolutely. this exists, but how do we how do we get better? Yep. The song is Destination Anywhere, another great song. The woman singing it is the number four person who was almost one of the three girls. Wow, really? Yeah. And and Alan loved her voice, and so he oh. gave her this song. Nice. Yeah, it's that's what I really like about the, this film is that the behind the scenes stuff is cool too. Yeah, you know, yeah. it reflects what the philosophy of the movie is. Yeah, and this is this kind of montage where they're kind of getting to know each other as a band. We haven't played yet. Listen, from now on, I don't want you to listen to Guns and Roses and the Soup Dragons. I want you on a strict diet of soul. James Brown for the growls, Otis Redding for the moans, Smokey Robinson for the whines, and Aretha for the whole lot put together. Jimmy's a soul sex. Dirty bastard. I didn't say that. I said the rhythm of soul is the rhythm of right. <laughs> it's all funny stuff. <laughs> and this is the first time where we really get Deco being a jerk to the women. Yeah. Well, and this is to your point before. It's like he comes at the women and they destroy him. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Soul is the rhythm of sex and it's the rhythm of the factory too. The working man's rhythm. Sex in the factory. Not in the factory I'm in. There is much rhythm in gut and fish. <laughs> I love the way he talks about soul. I love... Oh, yeah. By the way, spoiler alert, I love this music. Yeah. Like, I listened to James Brown and Otis Redding. I, all, that was what I listened to growing up. I still love that music. And I had an interesting experience. I, was, I think we've talked about... Uh, when we did Hard Day's Night, we talked about this mm. amazing book on the Beatles. And one of the things I did as I was listening to this huge book on the Beatles is they yep. discovered all these musicians that they love. Little Richard, Sam Cooke, Ray Charles, Fats Domino. And what I did as I was listening to this book was I made like a playlist of all the songs that they were talking about. And yeah. as I listed them, I had this epiphany because there's so much we're in the world of like EDM and electronic music, which is not my thing. And the thing that I realized listening to all this music, which is sort of the precursor to the soul that we're talking about in this film, mm-hmm. is that you could hear the sweat yeah, you could hear yeah. the live band in the club and people yeah. dancing, and that it was real, and all that emotion is coming through. And I'm not saying there aren't super talented people that make EDM and make all sorts of different kinds of music that's more, right. but you don't hear that. Yeah, you know this is, and that's the thing that I feel watching this movie is that you feel the people, you feel the human emotion coming through throughout this movie when they play music. Yeah, agreed. We got to go get some equipment. So we go to this really weird space where there are dogs with muzzles and <laughs> talking about feeding them rabbits. And, and here we make the deal to get the amps and the drums and the, you know, all the stuff that they need to go. And it makes the deal of, I can't pay you now, but I'll pay you soon. As soon as we're making some money, I'll pay you. Right. Um, <laughs> it reminded me of Ray Charles and the Blues, Blues Brothers. We'll take these axes. Naturally. And as usual, I got to take an owl you. Though that was a little 
a little less dangerous than, than this yeah. guy. <laughs> I don't know. Ray pulled a gun on him. That's true. He shot the kid. Yeah. I mean, he, he shot he the shoot him, wall but, near the kid. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and now we go into their practicing montage, which is nowhere to run. girls are practicing dance moves the sax guy is repeating black and i'm proud the drummer is practicing with cans and whatever he can find the lead singer is on the bus singing at some little girls who look very disturbed <laughs> um and we go into a pool hall which is going to be our rehearsal space the guy that is showing them the pool hall is the guy that was going to play jimmy when jimmy was going to play deco oh wow yeah that guy with the long hair yep how interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow. And I love that Alan Parker gave him that part. Like, I'm yeah, really sorry right. we're not giving this other thing, but you can do this. Yep. Yeah. Mustang Sally, brothers and sisters. And remember, Rome wasn't built in a day. Dublin was. In an hour. And right when they start, man, Andrew Strong's voice One, is just two, oh, three, four, so good. Two. Mustang Sally! And you see Joey looks over of like, oh, because that's the first time he's hearing him. And one of the things they did so well, and this is part of why Alan Parker wanted real musicians, Mm -hmm. is they do such a good job of showing the progression of this band. Yeah. You know, because there are things about this Mustang Sally that sound good, and there are things that aren't quite working, and they're not quite together, and they don't have it all. On their, you know, singing, maybe they're a little flat. He argues with them about you can't use your accents when you're singing. <laughs> Royd, Sally, Royd. It's not Royd, <laughs> Sally, Royd. We're, it's later on. They're watching Deco eat. Look at him. He eats like a pig. He's such a prick. Hasn't got the voice of a prick, though. Joey says it belongs to God. God should ask for a bike. <laughs> <laughs> Which, of course, sets up this uh, running rivalry between the two guys, the drummer yeah. and the lead singer, which a lot of um, bands encounter, don't they? Because, I mean, the drums kind of set the rhythm and the lead singer gets upset if the drum goes, if the drummer goes too fast or too slow. It could be undercutting. What, so it's always that kind of thing. Well, and again, you know, it's funny you brought up this question about screenwriting is that yeah. a, a poor screenplay, a not good version of this is we'd just be watching the band get better. Right. But what's right. actually happening, we are watching the band get better, but we're also planting the seeds for all the conflicts that are going to destroy the band. Because this yeah. is, it's like, this might be the most fun you can have in a tragedy. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, because this is all heading towards disaster. Yeah. And yet point. it's really enjoyable, an enjoyable journey to disaster. You're doing what I told you. You're thinking of that reed as a woman's nipple. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I love that he asks, who, who is she? And he's like, yeah. oh, she's she lives across the street from me, but I'm embarrassed because she's still in school. And this is like the amazing Zen master advice. Maybe you should set your sights a little higher. My trumpet was always Gina Lola Brigida. And what's funny about the scene, of course, is that the sax player is a great musician. Joey, yes. can't, Joey can't play the trumpet. Right, right. But he's schooling him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good try, uh, Kim Basinger. And it's great because Joey doesn't know who Kim Basinger mm, is. Mm. And the sax player doesn't know who Gina Lola Brigida is. That's great. So it's a nice little kind of generational thing, too. And, of course, this is Kim Basinger 
91 is is like peak Kim Basinger in terms of totally uh, uh you know work n- uh, notoriety yeah uh sexiness all of it it's peak Kim Basinger totally and now we're back with them doing Mustang Sally again and they sound better one of the interesting things by the way it's come up before is that the normal way you shoot something is you shoot the wide shot first you always shoot a master first when you're filming and you do this for several reasons the first is is that you want everyone cast crew and all the actors to see and understand the whole scene whereas if i just shoot your close-up first well i don't really know what i'm doing and where i'm going on my side of the scene therefore you don't really know where to look in your close-up because we haven't done the whole thing you know right and the other reason is that you want to set lighting you want to see what the whole scene looks like in the master so that when you go into the close-up you can match the lighting and the close-up to what the master is if you shoot the close-up first well i don't know what the other side of the room looks like and it's gonna be really hard to keep everything the same they did this the the opposite direction and the (laughs) reason that they did close-ups first which you rarely do is that they actually were doing these performances live these are mostly their live singing voices because they didn't alan parker didn't believe that you could match great live performance by lip-syncing a studio version of the song. Like, uh, did he not watch La Bamba? Because Richie Valens, I mean, uh, Lou Diamond Films literally does that through the whole movie. Well, and that's the way most movies go. Yeah. But but I will say, I like La Bamba and I like his performance. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like the commitments. No, you're right. So maybe just for, maybe for this particular movie, what he wanted to uh, accomplish, that made that's the way to go. Well, and, it certainly worked out. And so this is how they did it, is that most of the, the instruments are pre-recorded, ah. and the voices are live. And so the question is how you do it. And I just love the technology. They have such a slick technological way of doing this. So, yeah. so uh, and it relates to, do you know how your noise-canceling headphones work? I do not. I just know that they do. So picture in your mind a sound wave. And so you have a line and you have, I'm gesturing so everyone can see this. You have a wave (laughs) going up and down across the line, right? So if I take a wave, the exact same sound wave, and I flip it upside down Mm -hmm. so that I have one, the wave like this, and then I have the other wave that's the opposite. So when when the wave was going down, I have a wave going up. And I play those together, you hear silence. One wave cancels out the other wave. Wow. So what's happening in your noise-canceling headphones is there's a little microphone that's hearing Uh the world around it. And what it is doing is playing the world around it into your ears flipped so that you're actually hearing two sounds and each sound is canceling each other out. Wow. That is how they played this music uh, live. They played music out of the speakers out of phase so that they could then cancel out all the all the other sound and have the vocals isolated wow isn't that amazing that's great i mean this is not a high-tech movie but that is a really brilliant solution to a very complicated problem on the set that was a load of shite it was woeful but that boy can sing and it was a start i believe in starts once you have the start the rest is inevitable again he's like the great zen master yep yeah, because I think Jimmy would have driven this band into the ground. Yep. By overworking them, over rehearsing them, you know, being because he's temperamental himself. He's emotional himself. He's the wrong guide for this band. Well, and I think for lack of a better term, it's like mom and dad, you know? Yeah. You got the yeah, harsh kind of, one yeah. who's passionate and intense, and you've got the one who's loving and supportive of everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
We have a little scene collecting some unemployment. Hey, Jimmy, it feels much better being an unemployed musician than an unemployed pipe fitter. <laughs> Which I think is, but I actually think this line is key to the movie because what we're going to get to in the end and what Joey says in the end is that he gave them hope. Yeah. That's yeah. what he's giving them is that moment of I'm not an unemployed pipe fitter. I'm an unemployed musician has yeah. changed Dean forever. Even though he's un- still unemployed either way. It's like life. If you reframe your approach, your perspective, you'd be surprised how differently everything looks just by reframing it in your own mind. And the scene feels very similar to the full Monty. Remember when they were doing the dance when they're in line at the dole as well? <laughs> it's that kind of like the formation of this. Uh, both both movies, uh, that scene occurs when they're forming the group. You know, it's so funny that there's just this world, this whole run of films that are these Irish comedic dramas, you know, yeah. working yeah. class that are great. Yeah. We're with Joey's mom. The band is trying to figure out, <laughs> did he really do this stuff? <laughs> I love it. And she goes, yeah, of course he did. He sent me postcards from everywhere he went. I'll tell you a secret about my joy that no one else knows. <laughs> he sent me a postcard in every place he went. <laughs> um, and they even see it says Joey F on the back of an album. Like, well, that yeah. could be anybody. Once um, again, that mystery, right? Yep. The mystery of it all. It's great. We're back in Dublin and we get to Jimmy's walking up to, you know, a tall building like a housing project. And we get to like, again, it's a classic joke. <laughs> There's a horse waiting for the elevator. He says, you're not taking that into the lift. We have to. The stairs will kill him. <laughs> That's just a good joke. It's a very well-structured joke. Yep. And we find Bernie with the baby. Her mom is not only has many, many kids, including yeah. babies, but she's got another on the way. And that Bernie is the one bringing in the money. And so mm-hmm. she's missing rehearsals. You're not dumping me, Jimmy. I brought in the other two. Or was that the reason why you fucking asked me? What are you talking about? You got the best voice of the three of you. Do you think Jimmy thinks she's got the best voice? Yes. I do think Jimmy thinks she's got the best voice. But in his mind, he doesn't see her as, you know, the same way as he sees Imelda and to a lesser extent Natalie. Look, Jimmy, I catch up. I need this band more than any of us. I need something to look forward to. Once again, the idea of hope, right? Hope. Like you said. yeah. We're in church. He's with the organist who's playing, <laughs> doing a wider shade of pale. Yeah. And what, what, the, what the guy playing the organ said is that it was really hard to talk and play. It's oh. easy to sing and play because they're sunk to the music. Right. But the but when you're doing a scene with someone, well, the rhythm of the dialogue is nothing to do with the rhythm of the music, and it was really hard for him to do it. When the sixteen vessel virgins leaving for the coast, what's that mean? And we hear the priest say, I never understood that either. It's a very peculiar lyric. Which I love. Yeah. Um, and this is where we find out we got a gig. We're gonna have a gig at the community hall at the church. To stop people using heroin. <laughs> Just get to stop people using heroin. <laughs> And now we're into Too Many Fish in the Sea, which is the Marvelettes. I mean, again, yeah. every song is a great song. Look here, girls. Take this advice and remember always in life. Into each heart, some tears must fall. Though you love and lose, you must stand tall. And Deco says, well, what am I supposed to do? And this is another one of our conflicts. He doesn't like it. When the commitment ets are singing lead. Oh, yeah. No, he, he doesn't like being uh, pushed aside for them. Yeah. 
our sax guy Dean goes out to grab a smoke, and there he finds Joey the Lips using his lips with Natalie. You fairly ruffled my sub affair there, Dean, my man. These are a bunch of musical nerds coming together, and clearly this one doesn't have any understanding of how to play wingman in this situation. You well, certainly just, you, as soon as you stumble upon it, you quietly move back, and then later go like, nice, nice. Well, 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 wait, hold on. I don't think he wants to be wingman at all. I think he oh. thinks this is gross, because oh, this is an old right, guy. Fair enough. He runs into the, that, you're right, he runs into the uh, band room a few seconds later. And says, Never believe what I just seen. Oh. Joey and Natalie getting it off on the stairs. Oh. Oh. I'm telling the truth. Well, because remember, they were ogling these girls before. All of the yeah. our young musicians. Yeah. Are in the, and this is the thing, too. I'm not going to say that Joey the Lips is disreputable because of this. But I think this is part of why he's in the band. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. You know, I mean, and, and is he's it an okay? older guy, too? These girls are what, in their early 20s? Early 20s, and, teens? and he's in his late 40s, early 50s. Yeah. Yes. You know, yeah. he takes down the commitmentettes one by one, yeah. to be clear. Yeah, so you um, youngins, watch out for the old guys. But he's old and he's ugly. But you're young and you're uglier. Joey's not married, so fair fucks to him. You're all so fucking stupid. Can't you see that Natalie get off with him? Then she's a slut. And he's on top of the piano, and they push him off the piano. Uh, we're setting up for the gig. <laughs> we have these twins who talk together in every scene. Yeah, it's really sisters, funny. Yeah. Mickey Wallace wants to see you. He's, he's in, in the pub. Mickey Wallace. I heard him to do the door. Security. You imagine Jimmy. He's a savage. And Jimmy says, "I know, but he's our savage." And we go and meet Dave Finnegan, Mika Wallace. <laughs> he is banging Mike into his head. It's just totally insane. Goes into I Don't Like Mondays. <laughs> the Boomtown Rats, I love it. He, it's, he's such a great character. Just oh, yeah. violent, crazy. And this is how he got into the movie. Is As we were going around uh, uh, Dublin, they were going to all these clubs. They went to a punk club and they saw him. He's the lead singer of a punk band. And the, and. Alan Parker saw him stick the microphone in his mouth and sing with the microphone in his mouth. And he went, I got to bring this guy in. Yeah. Did you, I know you watched some of the stuff on the DVD. Did you see his audition? No, I didn't watch his audition. Okay. Is that it's on one there? Of, yeah. It's okay. on one of the behind the scenes or something. Okay. There's a lot of stuff on that, on the Blu-ray. Alan Parker's just talking to him and they get into an argument. Oh, wow. And Alan Parker insults him. I mean, you got, you got the same kind of haircut as Shanita Connor, nearly. Don't get smart now, you know? Yeah, what are you going to do if I get smart? Keep pushing on a break, I bleed neck, right? You do what? You and his army. And they literally just like, oh my God, <laughs> at any second they're going to fight. And that's how he casts him in the movie. <laughs> I just it's, want to see if it's believable. Like, it's not fake scary. It's like yeah. he could at any moment beat you up directors. Alan Parker. Yeah. You directors fucking with people. <laughs> you directors. I, I don't know that I've ever pulled that particular move. Um... We're looking uh, out of the audience. They're all in their suits. They're not happy to all be in the suits. The girls have some beautiful dresses. Uh, Mika is at the door being an aggressive door guy. Yeah. Our bass player is nauseous, and Joey settles him down. And then Jimmy goes out and introduces them. Will you please put your working class hands together for the savers of soul, the hardest working band in the world. Yes, 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 the commitment. Can't get the curtain open. <laughs> <laughs> The other way, brother Robert. <laughs> Jimmy goes to the soundboard. The bass players, you could see the vomit going into his mouth. Yeah, yeah. And then they just sit there. They don't know what to do. Brother Billy, oh, when you're ready. <laughs> and they oh, go right. into Mr. Pitiful. They call me Mr. Pitiful. Better than that's my name. I love that song. 
great song. Another Otis Redding song. Mm-hmm. The commitment ads are not quite together. Deco sounds great. It, they do a perfect job of having them be good, right. but not that good. Right. And, and De- clumsy. And clumsy because Deco pushes the girls. <laughs> and then and Deco also says, uh, you know, calls them his group. And, oh, yeah. and the drummer doesn't like that. And Joey right. tells him he's got to apologize to the girls. And they're swearing at each other. And then yeah. they try to get it back together and get back into the song. Next song we sing, Natalie is singing lead. She's got a great voice. Yeah, she does. Marie Doyle Kennedy. I mean, she was already in a band before the film when she auditioned for the film. So I think it's called the Black Velvet Band. And she's released numerous albums mm. uh, since. Uh, some solo, some with a group. Yeah, she's an incredible singer. Um, the twins go to get Cole Meany, who's at a pub. Um, the pub, by the way, you'll notice is it's got all these glass, like this weird, is mm. that it was a club that was built when men and women couldn't be in the club together legally. Wow. So Colm is on the men's side <laughs> and they say, and the twins say, no, he's, he's really, the band is really good. And we're back at the concert and the show is going great. And in comes Cole Meany standing next to Jimmy and starts dancing. And there's some looks there. And we have our lead singer is picked up the mic stand. <laughs> this looks really dangerous. And he slams it into the guitar. There's a huge explosion. Everything goes out. And the audience wants more. Right. That's rock and roll, son. That's rock and That's roll. Soul. Have you ever heard of this? Because he becomes electrified. And you're not, the guitar player does. And you're not supposed to touch someone once they're electrified that you could get yourself electrified as oh, well. Yeah. We, I've we, never, I've never known I, until the movie. I didn't know this was a real thing. Oh yeah, but, you, yeah. We, we we're we're not the best conductors in the world, but we definitely can conduct electricity. Well, you, here's 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 the experience you've had that you know. Someone goes to shake your hand on a dry, cold oh, yeah. day, and you get a shock. Yeah. That is them conducting electricity through your bodies. You know, I've been shocked before by electricity. I put my finger in a socket one time. It's Just a, kind of, and it was a. Fuck you. It's so fast, Steve, and mm-hmm. you literally are just frozen. It's like what they show you in those comic book or I mean uh, cartoons. Oh, You're yeah. literally just frozen. No, it's scary. It's super scary. Yeah. I mean, and they're those pe- they're people who like like they're those things you can hold on to and they make yeah. your muscles all and people are, let's do this. I'm like, no. <laughs> it's no fun at all. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Cut to the hospital where we have a funny conversation about how musicians died. <laughs> we need a year's rehearsal. What? Let's face it, Jimmy. We're all over the place. It was rough. Sure. But there was moments there where you were cooking. Which is exactly right. Is they are all over the place. And they yeah. do have something. And already they're kind of going, maybe we should just pack this thing in. We just want to be in the band in the first place. And they don't have an answer. And yeah. he says... You want to be different, isn't that it? You want to stand out from the rest of the tossers. You want to get up and shout... I'm Outspan fucking Foster, and I'm Derek fucking Scully, and I'm not a tosser. Isn't that it? That's it, Jimmy. Well, don't forget it. Unless you want to spend the rest of your life wrapping frozen fucking chickens. The thing about Jimmy as a character is that he knows what he wants, Mm -hmm. you know? That's why he's doing all these interviews. He has an image of who he's supposed to be, and he's trying to be that. And because he knows that, he knows something about what's inside the hearts of these musicians that he's brought together. Yeah. Tell me, Jimmy. Did you ever have any doubts that things wouldn't turn out as you planned? Well, I'd be telling fibs if I didn't, Terry. And there was that old rock and roll demon, S-E-X. Sex, Jimmy? And a kid pops up. Sex? Fuck off, I'm being interviewed. Joey <laughs> puts on a record. Oh, my God. His yeah, shirt is off. The music is shaft. 
<laughs> and his spiel, I don't know what we call it. His so, seduction is what I would call yeah, it. Yeah, his seduction is just, yeah, I'll just play it. <laughs> Come on, baby. Don't get hung up on anything. You know, I want to be your everything. And of course, as he moves into someone on the bed, which we assume is going to be Natalie, the camera moves and we see it's Bernie. Will you stop talking to Joey Joey? <laughs> and we hear Shaft. <laughs> um, Love it. Our girls are together and they're talking about this idea that guys are now fantasizing about them, that they're mm -hmm. on stage essentially as sex objects. And what does that feel like? And right. even someone goes up and asks them where they're going to play next. And they say, up to our manager. And the last thing they say is, I feel like Madonna. <laughs> and again, it's changing how they see themselves. Yes. You know? Yes. Yeah. So even though they're not going to be a success as the commitments, right. they've changed because of this experience. We're in another rehearsal. There's a baby there. <laughs> This obviously they have twin. They have twins for this. The baby really was screaming and crying throughout. They needed the baby screaming and crying throughout, but it makes it really, really hard to shoot a movie. And honestly, it's really hard on a baby. Again, we have uh, more conflict with the drummer because Deco was playing for the drums. Fucking hell! Doesn't take long to get the hang of it, does it? It takes control and skill. So you're fucked for starters. We hear that Wilson Pickett is coming to Dublin. This becomes an important uh, plot point. And Imelda tells Jimmy that she can't make the gig. What? I'm going on my holidays with Greg and the family. We've got this caravan in the Isle of Man. A caravan? Jeez, we're just getting things going. You're pissing off to some tossing camping site. Ah, shite, Jimmy. You're making me feel worse than I already do. And, and here's the truth of the matter. Like, when you watch this scene, Imelda's absolutely right. But producers and band managers... Their job is to not give a shit about your schedule because they got to hit their things. They got to get their stuff done. And that's the unfortunate situation in, in at times in creative endeavors. And you have to make your own decision about whether you want to allow that to affect you or not. Well, and, and I would just say they're both right. I mean, like, yes. like right. you know, the, the play is going up this night. Yeah. And suddenly you say, hey, I can't make the play. It's like, <laughs> well, I know you're you. You agreed to join the band. Right, right. Well, and this is, you know, how often have you had to choose between your personal life and your professional life? Uh-huh. Uh -huh. All the time. And All you make time. that choice as best you can. Yep. And I think particularly when you're younger, when you're younger, you know, and you're not married mm -hmm. and you don't have kids and, you know, it's like, well, I'll just go do whatever. You know, sure, I'll right. do 10, 10 gigs in a row and stay up all night and because that's right. the life, you know. Yeah. Um, we start with a shot of the Pope and pan up to Elvis. Um, and this, by the way, was shot in a studio and added later. It was an idea Alan Parker had, like, after they had wrapped photography of just oh, this wow. shot, okay. of j just this one shot of the of the pictures. And right. now we hear a story of Joey telling about his experience at Graceland to Colm, who's just waiting, <laughs> just on his every word. Transfixed. So, get out! I said get out! So what did Elvis say, Joey? Yeah, listen to this. This bit's brilliant. And he handed her back to me and he said, Joey, the lips, please forgive my daddy. 
And maybe this story is true, and maybe this yeah. story is not true. And I love at the end that Colmas really, really seriously. With all the time that you were in Graceland, did you ever, did you ever see Elvis messing around with drugs? No, brother. I knew it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Great little, great little running again. Once again, great little subplot running all through the film. This, uh, this Elvis thing. Well, and what's great about it is that it confirms something that was important to Cole Moon Meany's view of the universe. Oh yeah, because yeah. Elvis, he put Elvis on a wall next to the Pope. That's how important. And of course, there's two things in this line that I like. One is is that it's possible that Joey was never at Graceland. Mm-hmm. It's also possible and maybe likely that if he was at Graceland, he did see Elvis messing around with drugs, yeah. and he's lying to Colmini to preserve Colmini's view of Elvis. Yes, that he- I think is true. Um, I also think the other story can absolutely could have absolutely totally. happened, right? Just a quick thing. Listen, I met John Woo and he thanked me for doing uh, uh, ADR work on Wind Talkers. He wouldn't remember me from no. Adam now, but I had that moment. Right. And so it's like you can say, oh, I had that moment. But like Elvis met thousands and thousands of people all the time. So it's like, you know, you take away that moment. Like, oh, I got to meet Elvis. But he's like, oh, just another yeah. person. I, yeah. I went to the Amblin buildings and met Steven Spielberg and ran wow. camera while we interviewed him. <laughs> That's awesome. He would never remember me. Right. There's right, no right. reason why he would ever remember me. Right. Um, have that moment. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was. It was great. It was like meeting. Literally felt like meeting the president. Like we had. <laughs> we had an assistant come in. We're in this room, and the assistant came in and said, "Stephen will be coming in in about 15 minutes. He's going to look at the shot, and he has to make sure it's acceptable. If you, if he asks you to change the shot, you have to change the shot. He'll do three takes on this thing that he was recording, and after that, and please don't ask him any questions about his film or anything that he's working on. He'll be happy to greet you and say hello and shake your hand. But that's it. And we wow. go. And we go. Okay." <laughs> and he came in and he was warm and charming and like yeah. the coolest thing. So what he what it actually was was he was recording a tribute to Milos Forman because oh, Milos nice. Forman was getting some kind of award and mm-hmm. Spielberg couldn't be there. So it was one of those yeah. you know remote things. He he did and he had a teleprompter and he did it once. He did okay. And he did it a second time and he said that one's no good. And he did it a second time. He did better. And then he did it a third time and he rearranged a bunch of the words and made it more casual and natural. Wow. And and I was like, damn, that was really good. And and he said and he finished the thing and he looked at us and he went, That's the one. That's your take. All right, I gotta go. And and what was and it was just I it's totally small. But hearing Steven Spielberg say, That's the one, that's your take. Yeah. I heard him on the set. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it was right, like of that's course. how he sounds yeah. on the set. It was really yeah. cool. Anyway, <laughs> but we digress. Uh, Imelda's getting on the boat to go with her family, and they're about to leave, and she says, I can't go. It's that group. It's that fucking group. Yeah. We're at a club, and the bartender's like, this is a big group. Um, and in comes Imelda, soaking wet, and it's like, oh, great, she's going to be here. We go to the show. They're doing Take Me to the River. Now they're sounding really good. Won't you tell me? crowd gets into it the horns sound great it's all working really really well the other thing that's happening i know you've experienced this too is like you're doing a play and you're first trying to just get it yeah you know 
and then you go off book and then it becomes terrible again. And then you, it starts to get better and then you go into tech and it becomes terrible again. And then you, um, you know, have your first, your dress rehearsal, first preview, and it's starting to come together. There's this moment that happens in a good play um, where all the pieces are there. You're not stressed about lines. You're not stressed about technical stuff. And you start to look around and have fun. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's this scene. Is they're past the hump of being able to play together. And now they're actually starting to enjoy it. And then the drummer knocks over his drums and Deco calls him a fucking idiot. And they argue. And Joey again settles him down. And, and, And they finish their song. And there's a huge reaction in the crowd. And they just take it in. And I, you know, things are getting, this is really going to work. It's going to happen. And after they're at dinner and they start off celebrating and then Deco comes up and sings in Imelda and immediately conflict starts again. We talk about Joey who's having sex with everybody. Jimmy gets angry. He says, sex, 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 a fuck's up everything. You told us so was sex. Look, let's keep relations on a professional basis. <laughs> How are we professional if we've never been paid? Yeah. I'm working on yes. fucking working on And there's the shot. Yeah. Um, he exits. He's outside calling a cab and up comes Natalie. I think this is a great scene. Oh, yeah. She asked to share a taxi home, which is really forward. You know, yes. it's very clear. Mm-hmm. And his response is, for fuck's sake, Natalie, how can you ask me that after what I just said in there? If you weren't the manager, would you? Would I what? Take me home. But I am the manager. Interesting moment, right? I mean, because we just saw uh, what's his face with Bernie. Bernie. So, what happened with him and Natalie? Did he just go, "I'm cool"? Like, did he just have sex with her, and then that was it? Like, is he just going through these women as a kind of like, you know, conquest type situation? And so, you know, is Natalie one of those women that kind of got a little too into the situation? And then when he rejected her or stopped having sex with her, she was hurt by it. So she's reaching out to him to try to connect with him. Well, know, I think what's what's in, so so two things. One is on the on the Joey front. I think what's interesting is that when Natalie is hooking up with Joey, mm. the g- other girls are defending her, saying it's not your business. She can do what she right. you know. She's a grown woman. And then when we see that it's Bernie, our senses, oh, what's going on here? But yeah, we don't yeah. see that there's conflict yet. Right. What we're going to see next is that in fact Joey is a central conflict for the three women. Yes. That that is what's actually and then I and then on the Jimmy thing, there's a moment where Natalie says, Hey, you know, I think Jimmy's cute. And and they make a gesture of maybe Jimmy is gay. Right. right. I think that's the the so so this moment here could either be that Jimmy is one hundred committed to percent committed to being the manager. Yes. And that is why he's not gonna do anything with Natalie. Yeah. And the other possibility is that he's gay. Right. And that's why he's not going to do anything with Natalie. Right. Because, and we're going to get to it at the end. There's another mention of Natalie at the end where it's very ambiguous what he's talking about. Right. We're at a photo shoot. Look, do you not think it's better to have the band on Butt Bridge with uh, the custom house in the background? I'm not after a bleeding postcard. I'm after urban decay. Some rockers come up. We hear them sing Fame, <laughs> which is, you know, obviously Alan Parker directed that. Up comes the van with the drummer who says, I'm leaving the band. It's Deco. I hate him. I can't do it. He's a prick. It's no use, Jimmy. It lend them violence. I'm gonna have to hit him. And I'm on probation, you know. Probation? Yeah. What for? For hitting a prick just like him. <laughs> and at first, Jimmy says, Where am I gonna get a drummer as good as you? And then when he realizes he can't get him, he says, Anyone can play the drums, Philly. So fuck off. He's really, really pissed. He is pissed, because I mean the guy said you can use my drums until you find another person. Like he's he he understands. It's actually 
he's pretty self-aware. He says, I know what's going to happen if I right. stay in this situation. So I know I feel I know I'm, I'm I feel bad that I'm doing this, but you can use my drums until you find a new drummer. So I'm trying to make the most of the uh, of the best of the situation the way it is. Uh, and Jimmy doesn't want to hear it, you know, because Jimmy just cares about uh, what he wants. Well, and, I mean, but it's not just what he wants. You know, the drummers, of course, it's not just what he wants. Well, the band wants there to be a band. Sure. You know, the band does. Yeah. I mean, like if if, if I'm directing a movie and we're right about when we're going to shoot and one of my yeah. actors says, hey, you know what? I'm not going to do it. Yes, that actor has fucked me. He's fucked the whole movie. He's fucked. Yeah. You know, everybody's been working really hard on this. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, you know, and, and, and that's the thing. I have many times felt I'm the captain of the ship and I've right. brought everyone to this shitty place. Everything's mm-hmm. falling apart. It's all on me. You know, right. everyone's here waiting for me to solve the problem. Right. And maybe I'm going to let everybody down. But that's not what Jimmy's doing. I get what you're talking about. But Jimmy is about himself, which is why he interviews himself all the time, which is why he it's his ego to put this band together. He tells them what direction they're going in. He tells them what kind of music they're going to be playing. Uh, he tries to get them out of family events or gatherings so that they can be doing gigs. And in this moment, when the drummer says to him, I know what I'm doing. I know it's a, Jimmy's better impulses initially react. And then after it's his frustration and he even kicks the dude's. Yeah. He loses van, so that tells you right there he's a bit of an impertinent child who isn't getting what he wants. So, it's so funny. As, as, I hear what you're saying, of course, but I don't see you in him necessarily. It, it's so funny as often happens, and I realized this thinking about how you talked about Imelda saying, "I got this family thing," yeah, and you said, "Oh well, that's what producers do," and yeah. then I said, "Well, that's what he should do," you know. And 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 what's interesting is is like how you and I see it this character of jimmy differently and of course everything you said is totally right he's he's literally interviewing himself it is all about him on a on a fundamental level it's so funny because the plot of the assistance is there's this main character who is a producer who is trying to make all these things happen he is one of the hardest things in that film was i wanted everyone to like him and to believe that he did things for altruistic reasons and it was very hard to pull that off. And I think I only partially succeeded. Right. And it's very much a similar situation where there's a moment where it's all falling apart and he feels right. responsible for it. But you could also interpret it as it's all about him. You know, But what you said at the beginning of this thing is what's the would you say what's the more dramatic choice? Yes. The more dramatic choice is that he's a complete and utter asshole and trying to get what he needs. That's the more dramatic choice. The harder choice is to try to save him or make him redemptive uh, while he's trying to put this thing together as a producer. Well, it's I, not think, easy. I think, and, and, you know, maybe this will be too much of a digression, but f- for my particular aesthetic, I don't like yeah. bad, I don't like evil characters. That's just the, my thing. Mm-hmm. I'm more interested in exposing why a good person does an evil thing. You know what I mean? Ah, That's interesting. more interesting to me. Okay. And it, it, but it's hard, but it's, it's like a, um, you know, how, what's the degree of difficulty for your dive off the high board, right. you know? And right. it's like, you could either the making of someone an asshole is a lower degree of difficulty, making mm-hmm. someone you really like who's positive and then does a negative thing. And now you have mixed feelings about them. That's a higher degree of difficulty. It is. Um, and I don't think Jimmy's an asshole. I think, no, I don't think so either. Yeah. I just think Jimmy wants what he wants. 
Alan Parker's favorite joke is the piano player in the confessional talking about him feeling lust for these women. And he's humming when a man loves a woman by Marvin Gaye. And the priest corrects him. Percy Sledge. Huh? It was Percy Sledge to that particular song. I have the album. Oh. Which, by the way, I always think when a man loves a woman is Marvin Gaye. Really? Yeah, it always just, doesn't sound anything like Marvin. Uh, I don't know why I always had that in my head. I would think Otis Redding would be mm. more uh, believable than Marvin Gaye. Marvin Gaye's smooth. Um, and now we go and grab the chips truck that we saw Bernie in originally. <laughs> and someone says, we can't travel in that shit heap. Buddy Holly's last words. What? We can't travel in that shit heap. Before he flew to meet his <laughs> destiny in that star-crossed night. <laughs> I love that joke. <laughs> and I love, too, that people come up and ask the truck for food, you know, because they're in a food truck. And they go, no, we're serving soul. <laughs> and uh, where did we get our drummer? Mika, our crazy bouncer guy, is now going to be the drummer. Next gig, they're even better. Baby, here I am, I'm a man on the scene. They're really starting to kill it. And then the sax goes off on a solo. And there are these looks. And later on at the urinal, I love this conversation. I went through hell learning how to play the sax. Now I can play it. I want to get better. I want to express myself. Which is a totally normal thing to happen in the band, you know? And Joey's response is, and I love this line. That's commendable, Brother Dean. But what you were playing was not soul. Soul solos are part of the song. They have corners. I don't know what they have corners means. But it sounds like a really deep statement about a certain kind of music. And I'd be well, curious to hear it. a musician talk about it. A corner is regimented, right? A yes. corner is regimented. So that's what he's saying is that you can go for a long time, but then you got to hit that corner and turn. What he's doing is uh, flowing into a room with no walls. Yeah. That's the difference. You were spiraling. That's jazz. I'm just trying to stretch myself. Jazz is music of wanking. If you want to wank, use that thing in your hand, not your sex. Oh, I'm, I was mad when he said that. <laughs> well, well, and this is the thing. is here that we're seeing throughout. Here's the seeds of why this band is not going to work. Right, exactly. I think on some intuitive level watching this film, even for the first time, you know this isn't going to work. You're hoping against hope, like all great right. films like this. Every time, every time you watch it, too, you delude yourself that maybe this time, maybe this time, which is which is the gift of movies like this when they're done well. Exactly. We go into Chain of Fools. The commitment ads are killing it now. Who shows up but the guys who want the equipment they come in they find jimmy they're hassling him the drummer watches it jimmy pulls out his money they start to get rough with jimmy and the drummer mika flies off the stage goes headbutts them and just goes right at him yeah um which i loved yeah and the band is like oh holy shit and joey goes no (laughs) you gotta keep playing and the fight gets ugly and the drummer, you know, fights his way free, picks up Jimmy. The guys, the bad guys exit. We get back on the stage and Jimmy immediately says, you know, here, let's hear it for the hardest working band in the world. And he goes around and introduces the band like right after the fight. And they finish the song big to cheers. Yeah. 
this is a moment. This is the apex of them as a band. I think, yeah, I think what I was, cause I was thinking about that too. It's like, well, this and tenderness, try a little tenderness. Yeah. Yeah. Try a little tenderness. Like, yeah, I yeah. think that's the musical apex. Yes. But I think this moment is the, when they're most together. Yes. Because even like they're sort of completely together. Whereas mm-hmm. try a little tenderness. There's tons of conflict, but musically they're together. Yeah. Um, we're outside a fancy hotel and up comes Joey and, uh, We've gotten a great review in the paper because there was a reporter at the last gig. And this is where Wilson Pickett is saying. And the question is, can Joey get Wilson Pickett to come? Maybe I've got to handle this thing alone. Why? I want to meet the man. It's personal. Never mind personal. You told me him and you were friends and he'd do us a favor. I know, but the last time I met Wilson, things were a bit sticky. This is again. Wait, does he really know Wilson Pickett? <laughs> yeah, right. Um. But, personal stuff. But he go Jimmy goes and finds the reporter and says Wilson Pickett's going to jam with us. Mm-hmm. So now we put everything is about this night. This right. is the big gig. We've got an article in the paper. We've got some attention, and Wilson Pickett is coming. Jimmy puts the pressure on yep. the situation. Yep. It's before the show. There's lots of incidental dialogue, all of which is really fun. The sax mm-hmm. guy comes in in a new suit and a new haircut. <laughs> A jazz haircut. If you say so. Yeah. And then Deco comes over and talks to the piano player, basically says, you're educated. I've got an offer to be in another band. Maybe it would be a good move. What a moron. It really is. And they announce it. Like, look, what are you talking? You're going to go to another band? And everyone's like, yeah. what? And the drummer comes at him and he knocks down the curtain where the girls are changing and they're angry at each other because Imelda comes in with Bernie or with Joey. And now Bernie's like, wait, what's going on here? And we see all this anger, all this yelling. Um, Jimmy tells them about Wilson Pickett. They don't believe him. And the the band has decided not to wear the suits. So you can wear jockstraps for all I care. Just try and behave like you know what you're doing. They are arguing and fighting and then hard cut into Mustang Sally and they're playing great. Mustang Sally. Laughing, smiling. The yeah. whole illusion that they're having a good time. Well, and, and this is the thing. I mean, you can have great onstage chemistry with a person that you're oh. really pissed at. Yeah. You know? I don't know. How, yeah. I mean, you, you and I are pissed at each other right now. <laughs> it's not true. It's not true. It's not true. It's not true at all. Not true. Um, <laughs> Tell me, Jimmy, when would you think was the big turning point for the commitments? I think it has to be when Wilson Pickett came and played with us in a small club in Dublin. That must have been quite a thrill, Jimmy. It will be if the fucker turns up, Terry. <laughs> the fucker ever turns up. <laughs> But once again, he's putting this pressure on the situation. He's putting yeah. this expectation on the situation. So he's setting himself himself up for a massive fall. Yes. But what I'll, what, what I'll also say is if Wilson Pickett shows up, this is a turning, this is a turning or could yes. be a turning point. Uh, you're you know? absolutely right. And when you're young, that's how you look at these things. Yeah. You're like, you get excited. You build it up because it's possible. Um, but when you're older, you go, I've been let down so many times. I'll just, we'll see if it happens. But when you're young, it's like, Oh, I can't wait. And then you're hurt or you're disappointed. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, you could, it's possible. You could go to an audition with one of your buddies and they could find you and you could become a star. (laughs) That could happen. But when you're older, exactly what you say is most of the time, what happens is you get really is Wilson Pickett doesn't show up. Yep. And I've had Wilson Pickett not show up many times. (laughs) 
<laughs> Natalie singing. She sounds amazing. She's great. Yeah. And Deco, of course, is watching from the crowd with his beard, not happy. Um, the arrangements, by the way, of this music is so good. Mm. And, and you know, everyone's together. Glenn Hansard doing a guitar solo. Yeah. The way that the girls are dancing. Everyone is just in the groove. They take their big bows, huge cheers, still no Wilson Pickett. Yeah. And then we go into the beginnings of Try a Little Tenderness, Otis yeah. Redding. This is one of my favorite songs of all time. Mm. I think it is such a great song. And their performance of this, I'm not going to say it it comes up to Otis Redding level. Oh, yeah. But it comes close. Oh, she may be weary And young girls, they do get weary Wearing that same old shaggy dress so Try a Little Tenderness is a song that I actually teach in one of my lectures at school. Oh, nice. Um, and here's why. So I use it to illustrate how music rights work because there's something really interesting about it, which is, do you know who recorded the first number one hit of Try a Little Tenderness? No. Bing Crosby, 1936. Huh. What? Try a Little Tenderness is a Tin Pan Alley song. It's a standard. And if you listen to Bing Crosby's recording, it is the song, but it isn't the song that we know. She may be weary, women do get weary, wearing the same shabby dress. And when she's weary, try a little tenderness. Yeah. And that Otis takes it. You know, songs have like an A, B, like an A, A, B, A, C structure. And the, the, the B is the chorus, the A is the verse, and the C is usually like a middle part where it goes and does something else. That's kind of classic popular song structure. The C section, which is what ends Try a Little Tenderness, where that song builds and then Otis goes off with the... Squeeze don't tease her, never leave her. That whole thing, that's all Otis. That's not in the song. Yeah. So here's how music rights work. If you and I wanted to buy a song for the cinephiles, yeah. we have to pay two people. We have to pay the people that wrote the song and the people that perform the song. Hmm. So if we wanted to have you two perform Yesterday from the Beatles, we would have yeah. to pay for the Lennon McCartney rights for the song, and then we'd have to pay you two to perform the song. This, I think, would be out of our price range for the cinephiles. Hmm. Um when the commitments does this song, and when really anybody does try a little tenderness, they're doing Otis's version of the song. Nobody's doing Bing yeah. Crosby's version of the song. And what makes the song great is everything Otis added to it. Yeah. If we had to buy the rights to that song, we would pay the commitments, who are the performers, and the Tin Pan Alley guy, whoever owns the rights, the guy who wrote the song. Otis right. gets nothing. Wow. He gets, it has nothing to do with him. He didn't write the song. He's not performing the song. So even though he completely transformed the song and everyone's copying him, he doesn't have any rights to it. He gets no money for it uh, at all. It's crazy, right? That's a shame. Squeeze up, 
performance is just stunning. And, and it's so interesting to me. They are peaking musically now. Yeah. Um, there's so many times where I just in my notes are like, man, they're killing it. Wow, this is yeah. really good. I would say this is the musical climax of the film. This is mm-hmm. their high point. As soon as we have this amazing musical moment, we are immediately going to fight again. Wilson Pickett finished an hour ago. I told you I spoke to the man. I did my best. That's not what you said. You said it was no problem. You said it was all fixed. If I find you being bullshit, me around that trumped up your ass, I swear. There's lots of tension between the drummer and the singer, between the girls, with the jazz guy. Everyone is upset. And, and I was thinking about this as like, success has led them to have confidence. And confidence has led them to have conflict. Because they have egos now. Because now they have egos. And then again, hard cut. We're back on stage and we're playing again. So you lot couldn't get tickets to Wilson Pickett tonight, no? You're supposed to come and see us, you know? Oh, awful. A small label wants to sign them and they finish their song. They head back to the dressing room celebrating. Everyone is happy for about 10 seconds. Yeah. Then the arguing starts again and Jimmy is out signing a deal, ready to sign a deal with this record contract. Except the guy goes, hey, is there any problems with the band? No, 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 Dave. You know how it is. First rule of rock and roll. Once they get a taste, they become overnight arseholes. <laughs> it's after the gig. The drummer's carrying out some of the equipment. Girls are talking to Deco, and man, they get right into a fight between Mika and Deco. He headbutts him, hits him with a garbage can. I mean, he just takes yeah. him out. He does. Just as Jimmy comes out to break that up, Natalie yells from upstairs, like, come on, they're killing each other. He runs upstairs. Everyone is there uh, fighting, and he says, Fuck it. Fuck the bloody and it's outside. Decker gets a bloody, and the girls immediately come up to him and ask for his autograph. Yeah. <laughs> and Jimmy's walking, and uh, Joey pulls up. You lied to me, Joey. I always bought everything you told us, and I'm probably the only one who ever did. But you lied to me. And I love what he does here. He says, look, I know you're hurting now. Look, I know you're hurting now, but in time you'll realize what you've achieved. I've achieved nothing. You're missing the point. Success of the band was irrelevant. You raised their expectations of life. You lifted their horizons. Sure, we could have been famous and made albums and stuff, but that would have been predictable. This way, it's poetry. Yep. This is why I brought it up way at the beginning of the show. I mean, this is the moment of the movie for me. This is the whole reason for the movie and why you have a character like uh, the Lips in there, uh, because or Lips, because the, he's supposed to tell you how to feel about this movie. You could walk away from this movie angry about the fact that ego destroyed them. Uh, but he frames it in a certain way that you can walk away from this movie with a sense of what could have been the tragic sense of what could have been. And that makes it more magical. I, I, I think that's exactly right. And I think about 20 something year old Steve who saw mm. it, who was Jimmy and was dreaming of success and stardom. And yeah. so for me watching this movie then i think i was sort of oh they were so close yeah they were about to be stars and i don't think i was capable of hearing this thing that joey says right and and now as a person who has had wilson pickett not show up a lot (laughs) and gone like oh no it is the journey yeah you know there isn't magical success that solves all your problems even the people i know that have had magical success it hasn't solved all their problems if you yeah yeah you know and so learning like oh no uh, enjoy the poetry enjoy the mm-hmm. moment that's what it's about um there's a great great line of jerry Maguire 
when he's having a flashback to his old agent. Mm. Or it's a, it's just, the, 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 it's not his old, I guess it's not his old mentor. Or maybe it is his old mentor. Because if this isn't right, right, nothing else matters. If yep. this isn't right, it doesn't matter. And that's what he's saying. Like, you know, it's, he's saying you got to look at it in a certain way so that you can frame it correctly and, in, and savor what happened here. Alan Parker says that this whole film is about giving someone something they can be proud of. It's not about success. It's about the pleasure of creating. Yeah. Jimmy walks away from Joey and then a limo pulls up. A guy <laughs> asks him for directions <laughs> to the club and he says the club's closed now. And, and we hear the chauffeur say to his, someone in the back seat, should we go back to the hotel, Mr. Pickett? <laughs> it's such a great, it's such a great thing to happen at the end. Yep. Because I don't think it proves that everything Joey said was true, but it proves that some of what he said is true. And it gives you that feeling of, oh, so close. So close. Yeah. I was trying to think of what moment it reminded me of. And it took me like a whole day to remember what it is. In the very oh. end of Midnight Run, De Niro looks at his watch and says, we would have made it. Oh, yeah. That's what this That's moment great. is. They would have made it. Yeah. Um. And then we hear the strains of tenderness starting up and we're in another interview and asking how he felt at the time. And then he asks him, what happened to all the people? I still see Derek and Outspan. They're still in the music business, mostly in Grafton Street. Cut to them uh, busking, which I think is the word they have on the street. Yeah. They're street musicians. <laughs> the thing I think about is, oh, Glenn Hansard was there playing on the street until we found him, you know, a decade <laughs> later once. and once. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe he's the same guy. Which yeah. is a movie I love. Yeah, once, and that, once and, is great. And that album, the from Glenn Hansard, is just yeah. an astounding album. Maritzka Ingova is the I think yeah. is the girl. She's so, yeah, great. They work well. They actually dated through the whole movie yep. and then broke up afterwards. Yep. So. Um, and now we check it on everyone else. Bernie doing country and western music. Dean is a successful jazz musician. Our doctor has become a doctor. Yeah. <laughs> I like that when he has someone say ah, he says. Say. And Mika, he has his own band, believe it or not, Terry. Quite a success. Cut to him in a puck band with his mic in the mouth, which is what, <laughs> which is how Alan Parker first saw him. Uh, Decca gets a recording contract. He's an even bigger prick now. Oh, excuse my language, Terry. It is Alan Parker at the mixing board. Ah, uh, yeah, right. In that shot. And then they ask about Natalie who's become very successful. We see her in like a black and white music video sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, but is it true about you and her? I don't believe all you read in the papers, Terry. But yes, it's true to say we are fond of one another. And we ask what's happened to Joey, and he's in North America sending postcards about playing with people that have been dead for 10 years. <laughs> so looking back, Jimmy, what do you feel you've learned most from your experience with the commitments? Well, that's a tricky question, Terry. But as I always say, we skip the light fandango, turn cartwheels across the floor. I was feeling kind of seasick, but the crowd called out for more. That's very profound, Jimmy. What does it mean? I'm fucked if I know, Terry. All you gotta do is <laughs> Roll credits. It's such a, I, you know, I'll say what I said before. It's such a joyful movie for something yeah. that goes really sad. Yeah. The reception, it, it opened a narrow, it was like a $14 million budget. Uh, it grossed about $80 million that year as it opened up wider, had even stronger home video, decent reviews. 
Uh, Ebert gave it a thumbs up, but Siskel gave it a thumbs down. Mm. Um, the soundtrack went triple plat- platinum. I mean, that's is a huge, huge soundtrack. In a lot of ways, the soundtrack's bigger than the movie. Yeah. Um, a lot of people wanted them to be a real band. And they actually did, when they were uh, doing promotion for the movie, they did play with Wilson Pickett. A bunch of them did go off and have their solo careers. Yeah. Um, the, uh, some of them have gotten together and played as a band several times since then. Yeah. It, the movie was so influential in Ireland, there's actually uh, postage stamps with the commitments on them. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, Andrew Strong went out and performed, did open for Elton John and Ray Charles. It was nominated for uh, a few BAFTA awards and won a couple. Uh, and there was even a London stage production that had a, over a thousand shows, which I never saw. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing about uh, that Alan Parker said about it. He said, this is not his favorite movie. He doesn't think this is his best movie. This is the movie he had the most fun on. Mm. Every day he woke up excited to go make the commitments. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. You can tell it bleeds through the film when you're watching it. hundred percent. John, do you have final thoughts on the commitments? Yeah, I think this film is, um, once you watch it, it's one of those films that if it gets its hooks in you, it'll never let you go. And you will always come back and rewatch it and experience it and feel like you're watching it for the first time because these characters are so authentic, so real. This journey is so universal. How many of us come, uh, and a majority of us who want to strive to achieve something in the world come from tougher upbringings, tougher backgrounds, hard scrabble lives because we see achievement as a way out. We see success and fame as a way out. And, uh, a lot of us who want to achieve that quietly believe we're a little more special than most everybody else who grew up in the same area as we did. And so we think if we just push hard enough, we can get there. And one of the brilliant things about this movie is that they taste that possibility so perfectly, so sweetly at the apex, just before it all falls apart in their hands, right? Like building this incredible sandcastle right before the wave hits. And you know, all you have is the memory of the sandcastle that you did it. And so what they walk away with from this movie is what you walk away from this movie is the fact that this could have been an actual band. You actually fool yourself into thinking that this could have been a great, great band. And that's the joy of this movie is the uh, is realizing that uh, those moments are as precious as any moments of success that you achieve in life is coming close to achieving that success or achieving that success before anyone sees it or maybe not enough people come see it. That's not what matters. What matters is your personal journey with it. And did you taste what you wanted to get out of it artistically and creatively? And if you did, that's the real achievement, not some gold trinket or some silver trinket you get from anybody else, from some you know subjective body. It's about your journey with it. And so as an artist, I think this speaks volumes to people who want to achieve some kind of measure of personal success or creative success in any endeavor they go after plus it's incredibly funny yeah it, it it's um everything you say is how i feel and the thing i would add mm. is there's certain movies that take you into a world that you've never mm. been to before mm. and and the world seems really like we talked about with on the waterfront that's a world i've yeah. never been to but the world seems really real and even though it's totally outside of my experience i feel deeply connected to it mm. another, another one that pops to mind is a totally bizarre example but swingers when it came out it was like yeah. here's this completely unique world that mm. feels true and that's how this feels even though i grew up as you know far from the world of north dublin as you could imagine and yet 
I so connect to all these characters and part of it's the artist thing, but I just love spending time with them. I enjoy being in the world with them and I cannot say enough about the music. I mean, it is so good and there is a lot of music. I mean, I don't know if there's 45 minutes of music performances. There's a ton of music and it is all so damn good. And again, you know, we talked about degree of difficulty with things you're trying to do. Well, living up to James Brown and Otis Redding and Aretha Franklin and the Marvelettes and all these amazing songs and doing them justice is a really high degree of difficulty. And Alan Parker managed to pull together a bunch of Irish artists that actually completely pull it off. And that is just a joy to watch. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's what we think about the commitments. Of course, we always want to hear what you think. Give us a search for us on Facebook for the cinephiles. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, YouTube, Spotify, Stitcher. Please leave your reviews on iTunes. Comments on YouTube are always fun. If you want to support the show, you can do it on patreon.com slash the cinephiles, where you can listen to our cinephile shorts, hear combined versions of our multi-part episodes and a bunch of other content, and even have your questions and movie picks come onto the show. You can buy the commitments or stream it along with every other movie we've ever reviewed on cinephiles.net. And you can reach the show at cine underscore files on Twitter, the cinephiles podcast on Instagram. You can reach me personally at SR Morris on Twitter and SR Morris one on Instagram. John, how about you? You can always reach me at the Roca says on Twitter and on Instagram. And of course, please come on over to the outlaw nation uh, outlet channel or the outlaw nation channel, which is uh, the outlet that I'm building up there. It's youtube.com slash John Roca says, Go and check out all the stuff we got going on there, please. And I think that's it for this week. We will see you next time on The Cinephiles with another great film. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.